everyone and welcome to The Scoop on Sunday. My name is Thomas Copeland. We're here on Facebook Live for the next two hours for all the latest news from Queen's and from beyond, so do stay with us. Um, we're still out of the Students' Union, I'm afraid, this evening. We're doing this show once again uh, from home. So thank you so much for being with us, but we've got a really, really busy show for you tonight with plenty packed in. On the show, we're going to be talking about sexual assault on campus here at QUB, following the release of new data from the anonymous submission website, Everyone's Invited. We'll be crossing the globe to talk to student journalists in Minneapolis, catching up on the conclusion to the George Floyd uh, court case and in India, where the nation has suffered through a fourth day of world record beating COVID cases. Um, this week as well, the QUBSU had its uh, annual awards. We have two of the winners, the uh, Queen's Rugby Club and Belfast Marrow here to talk about their work this year. We'll be looking at Northern Irish politics too tonight chatting to a young loyalist activist who's been there present at some of the fiercest riots, riots in Northern Ireland in recent years um, and we'll be dissecting some of the really interesting polling from BBC Spotlight this week. Plus we've got all your regular favourites, we've got a, a special sporty scoop working out what on earth happened, what went wrong with the European Super League, the Colin versus Cuthbert saga, caterpillar cakes go to war uh, from the good news scoop and we've got some uh, of a catch-up with some of our articles from the Scoop news site this week as well, including on conversion therapy. It's all here on the Scoop on Sunday, but we want to hear from you too. Send us your questions, send us your comments over the next two hours, and we'll do our very best to get them involved with the show. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Contact us now. Text 0784886580. Email the scoop at queensradio.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, let's get started tonight. Um, last week, the website Everyone's Invited, it released a list of 86 universities who'd been named uh, in testimonies of sexual misconduct. Queen's University, it's one of those universities and it was mentioned 15 times in anonymous accounts of sexual harassment and assault. Joining me now on the call is Jess Crisp, founder and president of the QUB Feminist and Equality Society who have started a petition asking the university to do more to curb sexual assault on campus. Jess, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, where to begin? Just for people who don't know, this petition that you've started and that you work you're, that you're doing is inspired by this website, Everyone's Invited. Uh, what's it all about? Uh, what does it tell us about QUB? 
And what kind of testimonies can you find on there? Um, the Everyone's Invited website started off as a place, um, particularly I think it was senior schools, um, where students were posting um, their experiences with sexual assault. Um, and if I'm honest, it's not something that I'd even looked at until a Sky News article came about um, where it stated universities. There's a list of 111 universities that have been named. Um, and in all the articles, Queen's was sort of left out. Um, it was mainly focusing on like Edinburgh and unis like that. And so I sort of went and had a little investigate. So I was like, hmm, I wonder. Um, and we are there, um, as is every other university I applied to. Um, and so it's quite a hard, it's not an easy website to navigate. And um, if you click on the testimonies, obviously they're updated daily. So to what testimonies you're going to see varies, I suppose, on what day you're looking. Um, and you sort of just have to scroll through. There's no way to filter it. You have to scroll through. Um, I certainly wouldn't recommend looking for anyone who might find it really hard to read. Some of the stuff is awful. Um, they're... I found just one testimony of Queen's. I would assume there was more. I couldn't keep looking through the pages. I think I got 15 pages deep and I was like, I can't, um, I can't read anymore. Mm -hmm. um, well, according to the tab, Queen's was named in there 15 times, but as you say, it's hard to keep a track of these things. What seems to be the case though, uh, Jess, whatever way you look at it, is there is clearly a, a problem in universities Aside from everyone's invited, and before we get on to your petition and what you're asking for the university, what's your kind of experience, your understanding, your knowledge of this issue of sexual harassment and assault in Northern Ireland and at Queen's? Um, so the No More uh, report found that one in three students across Northern Ireland are experiencing some degree of unwanted sexual behaviour. Um, the statistics for Queen's haven't been updated since I think 2018 um, by the Student Consent Research Collaboration and they found that 170 QUB students have been victims of sexual assault um, and a further 246 QUB students have been attempted victims of sexual assault or victims of attempted sexual assault I should say sorry. Um, it's a very like complicated subject research into it there's not there's not much um, it's a uh, yeah, it's one of those things that sort of until you look for it, you're not going to find it. Data doesn't come to you. Um, and, and on an anecdotal level, Jess, I mean, do you know other people who, who would tell you stories of their experiences? And is that part of the motivation behind uh, the petition that we'll talk about in just a second? Yeah. Um, and even when we were sort of researching for the petition, we had a um, anonymous questionnaire type thing um, where people could put in their experiences. Um, so we've read specific experiences to Queen's um our women's office next year when she um was running her campaign she had girls coming up to her particularly at BT9 um you know with all sorts of stories of um being pressured to leave or um security not doing anything or it or it ranges you know even um comments from security themselves um of a sexual nature towards girls um it really some of it is really quite shocking to hear, I think. Mm -hmm. what, 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 I mean, what kind of comments were people telling you that, that security, um, for example, I were think the specific um, thing that was given to us, the specific anecdote, was on um, Halloween where um, security said that they would like to bend a girl over their knee, um, which um, I think is quite quite well it shocked me 
Um, and I was like, wow. I mean, these are all given anonymously. So, I mean, I don't sort of want to go into too much detail just in case someone can be identified from that. But um, yeah, it's well, it, one of those okay. things. Uh, so, so you've identified, um, you know, what you see as a problem here. Uh, and, and the testimonies and evidence that you're getting uh, definitely support that. What, what then are you asking the university to do? What do you want to see the university to do in order to curb um, the problem that you've identified? So first of all, I think a big step would just be for the university to accept that there is a problem and acknowledge that there is a problem and they should be doing more. Um, we'd like to see implementation of um, consent, man, like compulsory consent um, classes or discussions um, that would then go on to some sort of um, I don't want to use the word exam because that's very formal, um, but some sort of test similar to when you join BT2, BT1, BT9, and you have to do like the fire safety um, course, something similar to that, more discussion based, um, where everyone has to go through that um, to understand. And obviously the issue isn't just in Queen's accommodation. This is across, you know, it can be in private rented accommodation too. So that's something that we're sort of um, looking to, you know, the petition isn't perfect and what we're asking for you know more still needs to be done even from the petition but we'd like to see this as like a stepping stone um to go further like the, our work wouldn't be done once this petition is signed if that makes sense um so yeah, so first we'd like to see acknowledgement we'd like to see education of staff and students um and we'd like to see queens actually um communicating with students specifically obviously my society because we've done the petition um, the student union and actually having conversations with us on like a almost like a, on like the ground level of what's actually going on what have you heard of I mean I, I wonder from again the people that you're speaking to Jess do you get the sense that there is a confidence issue in the reporting structures at Queen's University I, I was reading in preparation for talking to yourself this evening the tab for example an investigation suggesting and I believe this was applying to England but what one in 14 uh, students uh, who are victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault only one in 14 actually end up reporting it and go through official uh, procedures within their university have you found from talking to people that there is a similar crisis of confidence in the reporting structures here at Queen's yes there is a huge huge issue um I mean even one of the testimonies again was I didn't bother to report because I've seen my friend's report and not be acknowledged um, there's issues with Queen's not taking PSNI evidence within their own um, investigations. And, you know, there's a lack of sort of communication between Queen's and the PSNI investigations. Obviously, that could be a issue more to do with PSNI than it is to Queen's. But still, that seems that um, it seems unfair that a, a victim would have to give evidence twice when something could already be, you know. Um, and I appreciate, you know, different um, different uh like networks are going to have different ways of dealing with things mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there is a uh, sorry my phone's uh, falling yeah. down <laughs> no don't worry and uh, obviously i'm sure that the queens for something um that involves legal procedures like that i'm sure they would have an answer to that and they're not here so uh, what i want to ask then is you talk about in in your petition um sexual education as well i mean uh, some people might say is that the responsibility of the university is that not something that we should be doing in secondary school um and, and is that not a government's responsibility I think it's an element of both. Um, you know, the government does have a responsibility to educate children and it does. Um, unfortunately, across the whole of the UK, sexual education is not up standard and it doesn't adequately um, educate people at all. Um, and I think that's where universities need to step in. You know, there's, clear, there's a clear issue on university campuses across the whole of the UK and Northern Ireland. And 
things that are going on on university campuses, university accommodation, they need to be held accountable for. And so in that case, then, yes, it is their responsibility to carry on that education. Do you, th- do you I wonder, um, Jess, you know, when it comes to stuff like uh, sex ed, I mean, uh, hundreds of thousands of students uh, in Northern Ireland elsewhere go through their sexual education at secondary school. Um, you know, uh, not all of them end up being uh, perpetrators of sexual assault uh, and sexual harassment is sometimes talking about sexual education does that take away do you think at all from actually the focus being on individuals and and blaming it on a lack of education um i think no i think education is a root cause of a lot of things um or a lack of i should say um and i think you know without educating people on you know because sexual assault could be such a I don't want to say niche, but it can be such a, the act itself could be considered minor. It doesn't have to be full-blown rape, you know. It could be something as simple as, you know, um, touching someone's bum when you walk past them in a club. That's still sexual assault. And I think a lot of people wouldn't be necessarily aware or consider that to be sexual assault. And I think it's such a grey area around sexual assault and consent um, that there needs to be more education on it. That doesn't excuse anyone's behaviour at all. Um, And I would never excuse a perpetrator of it. Um, but until there is adequate education, you can't expect people to understand fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder, Jess, as we finish up, um, uh, I mean, on this show uh, and elsewhere, there's been a lot more conversation, I think, about this issue to do with uh, violence against women, largely, not entirely, but largely, you know, uh, the conversation sparked by uh, the murder of, of Sarah Everard in London. Do you feel, uh, as a young woman, that this is a watershed moment, the potential to be a watershed moment? Or to someone like you, does it just feel like, you know, uh, another day you wake up uh, uh, and, and head out there into the world? Um, I think at the time when it happened, it did. It did feel like a turning point. Um, her, unfortunately, as time's gone on, it's being discussed less and less. As with any sort of major event, you know, it's a big thing at the time and then something else grabs the news. Um, and I think that's that's a problem in itself. Um, and yeah, I think to an extent, maybe it is. I don't think it's going to be enough to, that sole event would be enough to push all the change that we need to see. I think people need to keep the pressure on, keep the pressure mounted. Um, and that's an unfortunate thing, I think. Um, what happened to Sarah was awful. Um, but I certainly think it encouraged women to speak out on um, their experiences. Um, I know for a few days on Twitter, my whole feed was flooded with it. So I think that's something and it definitely has raised awareness, I think. Okay, Jess, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Good luck with the petition. We'll have to stay in touch and make sure that we follow uh, this issue up that is fundamental to students' wellbeing here at Queen's. So thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Jess, Crisp there, founder and president of the QUB Feminist and Equality Society. Uh, You can find their petition on their Facebook or Twitter asking the university to do more to curb sexual assault on campus. Jess, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. The time is 14 minutes past seven. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, now this week saw the conclusion to the George Floyd case. Police officer Derek Chauvin, he was found guilty in all three charges, including second degree murder uh, from an anonymous jury of his peers in Minneapolis. Chauvin is being remanded in custody pending sentencing, expected to be around 40 years. 
Yesterday, I spoke to Samantha Hendrickson from the Minnesota Daily newspaper of the uh, University of Minnesota, who's been covering the George Floyd case since day one. Take a listen to our conversation. Samantha, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you're in Minneapolis at the moment. Can you give us an idea, first of all, before we get to this verdict, before we get to this week, what, what's the mood been like amongst the student community, against, amongst the community in Minneapolis, over the period of time that this trial has been in the court and, and developing? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, really appreciate it. In Minneapolis, it's it's been an interesting experience, I think, just living in Minneapolis, but then also being a student, it's there's a lot of tension. And I think there's been a lot of tension that's been building over the past year. And I've described it to people as sort of this sort of swollen. Um, you know, there's a everyone is very aware of what's happening, whether or not you are directly affected by it. So I would say people have been very, very anxious. And it's been something that while you're trying to keep at the back of your mind, it very much is at the forefront, I would say, of a lot of people, even students who come from out of state, uh, students who come from other countries. It's very hard to avoid that. And so I would say the tension has been pretty thick. And is that tension, Samantha, is that a tension about what uh, the, the verdict of this trial would be? Is that a tension that is tied to that particular court case? Or is that a tension that goes m much deeper than that and has been there as a consequence of uh, um, uh, racial tension, if you will, in a broader sense? I mean, as a part, like who's somebody who's not a person of color, you know, I can't I can't necessarily speak to that experience and I wouldn't ever want to want to try to describe that kind of experience. But I think that there's just been, yes, 100 percent about the verdict. I think people are, are lying in wait because the eyes of the world have been on Minneapolis um, for for a long time, for almost a year. And so people kind of kind of watching to see what happens and will this set a precedent. So I think that 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 really has been been the tension, especially as um, Killings in police custody can have continued across the United States over the year, and in some ways, it seems like they um, are much more at the at the forefront. I think as a result of George Floyd, um, as far as a, a racial tension, again, I can't necessarily speak to that. Like as somebody who's not a person of color, but I would say I think that people are becoming a lot more aware. Of what a lot of people thought of, of Minnesota as this very inclusive place, right? Like as a as a place where as a melting pot is a place where, where refugees can come as we have a high refugee population is that's not necessarily true. And there's been a lot that Minnesota and Minneapolis in particular has not been talking about in the ways that it deals with race and equality. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, let's deal with the first of those two points then. Uh, what were the expectations for the verdict? I mean, if you went to the average person on the street uh, in the days or weeks leading up to this and said, listen, I mean, uh, what way do you think this is going to go? Did the fact that Derek Chauvin was found guilty in all three charges, I mean, that, was that largely what was expected? Or were there some people who were kind of dividing opinion and going, uh, you know, we might get some of the charges and not others? What was the expectations for the verdict? I think the public had already decided that he was guilty. What that meant based upon a charge, I don't think if you ask somebody on the street was... I think he's guilty of this particular charge. Um, I think a majority of the people that you would pull off the street would say that he was guilty. Um, as the trial went on, I remember being there outside of the courthouse in this crowd of people. And when they announced that he was guilty on all three counts, I personally was so surprised. I was not expecting that at all um, because of the history that the United States and Minnesota has had in charging police officers if somebody 
dies in their custody, is killed by them in their custody. I don't think anyone, in, in all honesty, I think we were, I think a lot of people were hoping and a lot of people were were praying that that one of those charges um, would would give some semblance of justice, but that all three, I don't think anybody anybody expected that. And 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 obviously, and you've been reporting on this for weeks and for months, unprecedented, uh, I I believe in the history of, of your state for a white police officer to be charged in in the way that Derek Chauvin was. Describe for us if you can. So you're standing outside the courthouse when um the verdict came through. What was what was the reaction like? Describe for us if you can. Uh, what mm -hmm. that felt like, the atmosphere. We'll talk about the politics in a second, but I kind of want to focus on the individuals in a place like um, Minneapolis. It was really powerful to be there. It was incredibly powerful to be there. There was dead silence from about a thousand people outside that courthouse. I've never heard a crowd of so many people be so silent. And then as soon as they announced that the first charge, that he was guilty of second degree murder, there was just this eruption and i it's i it's hard to call it joy i think that there was joy that was present but i think there was so much of a relief and so much of a an unburdening that occurred with those cheers as people you know rose their voices in the middle of the square and it was so it was so crazy to think about it's, it's so crazy to think about now because I remember as soon as the first verdict came out, the, it had been an overcast day and suddenly the sun came out just as this announcement was happening. And you, you see all of these cheers rise up and you can hear like the sobs of Courtney Ross, Mr. Floyd's, Mr. Floyd's girlfriend, as she, as she also experiences that relief. And I, and then when the charges just keep coming and he's being announced as guilty, there's more cheers. And I think in all honesty, just more than joy, this this unburdening of the last year, because I think everyone there was was expecting to have to continue to do more work. And they do right in this in this city. But it was very powerful to be there. I had to sit back and look around uh, and say this is history this I want to I want to talk in a second kind of about you know a broad picture where America goes next but I mean let, let's talk then about what what's the immediate sort of political reaction uh, from the White House from the other major power bases in America uh, to this particular case because I mean Joe Biden was quite involved in this he'd been he'd been making mm. quite a few interventions over the last uh, number of days and weeks uh, what's the major political reaction been um it's <laughs> you know President Biden has said that this is a first step in police reform. Um, and I think that it, locally in Minnesota, for the most part, that seems to be um, the, the the same reaction uh, in that this is a first step and like reminding that this this is accountability. This isn't the full, this isn't the full scope of what justice looks like when it comes to police reform in the United States, when it comes to looking at um, how we can how can we be better at community and policing and all of these different aspects working together? Would it would it be fair then to say, do you think that this uh, uh, moment in time is different? Because, you, I mean, you've obviously mentioned that there is, uh, as there always is in America and indeed anywhere, a counting bailing opinion on anything. And you'll find somebody, you know, out there uh, who will disagree 
with almost anything. Does it feel different is the question, I suppose, from the many, many other uh, incidences like this in the past. And I think to myself, as I asked that question, even the last couple of days, I think it, it, in the state that you're in, in Minnesota and elsewhere, uh, individuals like, you know, Adam Toledo, Dante uh, White, um, two other people um, killed in really in, in recent days shows the fact, doesn't it, that this is an issue that seems to persist and that as much as the George Floyd case is one wherein, um, you know, there's a lot of attention. There's no, you know, there's no legislative change that comes about. as a, right. So my question is, is this different? It feels different. Mm. But I'm not entirely sure how that difference will play out. You know, I think to a degree, there is more accountability and there may be more push because, again, the eyes of the world were on... Minneapolis, you know, we talk about, I told you earlier, like my partner is from, is from Galway. Um, and so they had a protest for, for George Floyd after he died. You know, I have friends in Germany who had protests for George Floyd after, after he died, after he was killed. And we can now say murdered by, by Derek Chauvin. There's an accountability to that, that I don't think has necessarily been present with other cases of, of, of police killings, right? I would say that it feels different, but how that difference will play out and what changes that will bring about have yet to be seen. And I know that the community is working very hard to make sure that this does not slip through their fingers. And it isn't just a, okay, well, we did this. So everybody calm down now. You know, we did this. And so he's guilty. So it's not all bad or it's not, it doesn't need fixing because yeah. look, the, the justice system worked, yeah, right? Paper over the issue rather than yeah. sort of substantive kind of change. Mm -hmm. um, Samantha, we're going to have to leave there, I'm afraid. Thank you so much for talking to us. You are right in saying, I suppose, that we will need to look to the future and see where things go from here. And that will be the real test um, for America and indeed uh, much broader than that. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Now, that was uh, Samantha Hendrickson from the Minnesota Daily newspaper of the University of Minnesota. Give us an update there uh, as we see the conclusion this week of the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Thank you very much to her. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Now, this week, the QUBSU held its annual award ceremony. The Queen's Rugby Club was awarded a special recognition prize for their work following the suicide of Queen's students, Greg Gamble, who was heavily involved in rugby at the university. Earlier today, I chatted to Rory McGuigan, wellbeing officer for the men's rugby team. Take a listen. Rory, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, where to begin? Uh, tell me a little bit about Greg Gamble. Thank you for having me on. Um, Greg Gamble was an all-round amazing bloke, to be honest with you. Um, he, he drove standards off on the pitch um, and in training as well. And um, was a good laugh as well. He, he wasn't, he didn't, um, he never take that side away from, from training or playing. But also socially, um, he was always active and, and um, liked to, to go out with the boys and stuff. But also he looked after everyone as well. He was a fresher last year um, alongside myself. So we were in the same intake together. And he always was looking out for each other on on the socials and making sure everyone was all right and having a good time and stuff. And I think that really summarizes him. He was always, always thinking about other people. Um, 
Morgan himself. Yeah, you were you were in the same intake with him there that you mentioned. I wonder then for somebody who knew him just a little bit better, can you remember your reaction when you heard the news about his death? Um, it's incre- incredibly shocked, um, to be totally honest with you. Um, I got the call from our coach, um, who he had found out from his family, I think. Um, and he called me up to let me know the bad news. And as I say, I was incredibly shocked. It was it was completely out of the blue and just something you can never prepare for. And then obviously my secondary feelings were just just pure um, gutted that one, um, Greg had, had felt like that was his only option and also that we hadn't necessarily spotted that and been able to help him or, or um, at least try and try and give give our help and hand. It's tricky, I suppose, because, uh, you know, under normal circumstances, uh, uh, when you're seeing somebody more often, you can sometimes spot some of those telltale signs. Um, but that just hasn't been possible with COVID. I mean, is there anything, if you look back, and was there anything that, that maybe in hindsight you think to yourself that there was something there or did COVID just remove that opportunity entirely? To be honest, I think COVID really, really did remove that. And that's um, something that's been quite hard to accept is that normally they always say that you look out for your mates and if they stop going out or if they stop, um, if they change their behaviour in some way, you can you can look out for those signs. But because we weren't meeting up and because we weren't seeing Greg regularly, um, or if at all, it was really, really hard to see those changes. Um, so that's, that is why we introduced the, the pastoral committee and the pastoral teams as well to try and um, to form that bonding and keep in touch with a lot of the other players via online um, during COVID. That's one, that's one of the major things you've done. Talk to me then, I mean, because the team has done a really fantastic job and that's why you were being recognised this week by uh, the Students' Union. I mean, in the immediate aftermath, what is it that you decided to do and what have you done in order to, to try to raise some awareness about mental health and suicide? So really grateful um, to receive the recognition from the SU. There's been a couple of things um, we've pushed as a club um, to do since... Um, obviously the passing of Greg. Primarily uh, that, that consists of the pastoral committee we've set up. Um, so this is aside from, from the club committee or anything to do with that. And essentially it gives um, a lot of the, the newer players, whether they be freshers or just new to the club as a whole, um, a contact within the club, a peer contact that will be a player like myself that's been around for at least a year, but also knows the coaches well, knows a lot of the, the wider team well. And that aims just to get that induction and get that bond forming um, between the newer players and the existing players. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be about playing or about academics, just day-to-day chats to keep an eye on, make sure everyone's um, taking over and, and um, getting to know each other as well. Because obviously the chances for them to, to have met the other players at the beginning of the year were limited. On top of that, in terms of um, mental health awareness, our social media team have done an amazing job um, over the last couple of months um, to push out a lot more mental health-based content. And in February, um, the club as a whole embarked on on a sponsored run um, where we had to run a certain amount of miles over the the month of February. And in in return, um, we raised over £10,000 for So Sad Ireland, which was a charity chosen by um, Greg's family who aimed to push mental health and suicide awareness. And that distance, that, that distance had a real significance as well, didn't it, Rory? Yeah, so each player um, was given the target of running the distance from um, Queen's uh, Rugby Club, so up the, up the Dublin, to 
Greg's home club in County Cavan. Um, so it was over 300 miles in 28 days. So it's a bit, it's a big challenge for the boys. Um, but as I say, we raised a, a good amount of money, which made it all more worth it. And and I suppose you're doing all this, um, you know, socially distant in a in the middle of a pandemic, which means even the kind of basic organisation of all of this is so much more difficult, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, massive credit to both the, the pastoral committee and the normal club committee. I think they've done an outstanding, outstanding job uh, to get everything organised. Because um, as you say, it is a lot harder when it's not in person um, and everyone's got their own restrictions and everyone's either working or, or has their uni work to do as well. Um, so the restraints are that much bigger. So that's been another challenge. Yeah, you're right about trying to sort of overline. I wonder from a, a personal perspective, Rory, even speaking, you know, on behalf of other guys in the team, has all of this brought something home to you about mental health? I mean, uh, there's a, there is a problem with male uh, men's mental health and, and very high and rising men's suicide rates. And they say, uh, you know, that a lot of that is due to this cultural expectation, isn't it? That men will be strong and stoic and not really share their feelings. And I would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'd say that maybe that cultural expectation is even stronger within a sport like rugby, where, you know, there's maybe a kind of uh, um, uh, sort of macho uh, uh, reputation to it. Have you learned something more about mental health as, as a consequence of this and maybe changed the way that you think about that issue? Absolutely. Um, I think you're right, especially within rugby, there is that perception of, um, big tough rogue player that doesn't necessarily express their emotions and i think that's been one of the focuses of our social media campaign um just because that is the majority of our target audience i think i've learned yeah that a lot of people do struggle um and we've had a lot of people come in from outside the club whether that be they be professional um rugby players or other sportsmen and women as well um to express the fact that they struggle as well and that it's it's not always visible and it's not always um so easy to see but even the 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 best to do do struggle and do find things tough and i think it's understanding that and understanding that not everyone is um is superhuman and that means you can be more realistic about your own um, emotions as well and you're not you understand that you're not the only one going through things as well mm -hmm. as a final question rory you know what what will greg's legacy be what will he be remembered for by you and by the club Hopefully, um, we will we will continue to remember Greg. I think we'll probably aim to do a similar um, distance running challenge each February, and also play an annual game against his home club in Cavan. Um, so hopefully, his his memory will be carried on that way. In a in a more deeper sense, I think hopefully that those games will be um, a reminder to future players, well well beyond when um, we've all left the club, that students your peers people you don't necessarily think might be struggling and they might be the most social and the most outgoing and um the most involved they might still be struggling as well so that's that's a note on two things um one that don't always take things for granted and don't always think that your mates around you um are fine and to make up make check up on them but also understand that if you are struggling with something you're not the only one that's going to be doing that as well and that, that other people will understand and will be there to speak to as well Rory, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me on. Cheers. That was Rory McGuigan there, the wellbeing officer for the Queen's Rugby Club. Thank you very much uh, to him. The time is 34 minutes past seven, and this is The Scoop on Sunday.
Okay, now joining me in the call uh, from the Good News Scoop, uh, available in all your best podcast places every single Monday, is Rebecca Dobbin Donaghy. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with us. No problem at all, Thomas. I'm glad to be back. Rebecca, we've had some really grim news so far in this podcast and there's more to come. So put a smile on our face. What story do you want to talk about this evening? Um, possibly the biggest celebrity trial since O.J. Simpson has been going on this week. Um, Marks and Spencers has taken on Aldi, um, claiming that Aldi is infringing on their Colin the Caterpillar trademark by selling their own Cuthbert the Caterpillar cake. Um, so as one does when one is covering such hard-hitting news stories, I have researched what that actually means in practice. So basically, it means that if a person was to buy Cuthbert, that they wouldn't actually be sure where it was from, that it could equally be from Marks and Spencers or it could be from Aldi, and you wouldn't be able to tell. And to be honest, I don't understand how they have a real case that's going to stand up in court. Like, I say that as if it's, like, my expert legal opinion. Like... I was the barrister on our mock trial team in school one time, so I feel like that gives me fair enough ground to make that judgment. Yeah, and I'm sure most courts would accept that as well. Is the, yeah. is the problem, Rebecca, not though? I mean, you said there that it's about whether somebody, if they saw the cake, is that it? That they would reasonably think that it was from Marks and Spencers and not Aldi? Yeah. But surely that... then it all down to, I mean, some people might really know they're, they're calling the caterpillar cakes and they might really, they might, they might, understand in meticulous detail the difference between a Colin and a Cuthbert, for example. Yes, yeah, What that... is the difference between a Colin and a Cuthbert, by the way? Do, do you know what, um, Thomas? I'm not actually, like, it's basically what colour of Smarties is on the top of it is about as far as it gets, to be honest. But the thing is, I don't get, is that every single major retailer seems to have their own Colin. Like, it's not like Aldi has just suddenly just robbed this idea out of the blue and this is a complete... Like, this has never been done before. Like, you can get Clyde or Curly or Cecil. Like, if they were going to punish anyone um, for stealing their Caterpillar cake, they should have went for Morrison's. They called their Caterpillar Morris or the co-op called theirs the Curious Caterpillar cake. Like, if you're going to punish anyone for their behavior on a Caterpillar cake, there were so many more C names to go for. And Morris? Just, they, Morris. Morris the Caterpillar. What a brutal even... name. I know. And then there's it it started to all get very passive aggressive, Rebecca, hasn't it? It has. Social media, as usual, is absolutely lit up with um, hashtag free Cuthbert. Um, As you can expect, like as usual, anything ever happens. It's on TikTok. It's on Twitter. Everything. Social media has went mad. It's actually how I found out about this story. I didn't realize that I sort of seen it on Twitter and I kept seeing free Cuthbert. And I was like, haha, this is a really funny joke. But no, it's actually... They've actually took them to court and it's it's a genuine serious thing that's going on. Um but no the my favorite tweet, I think, um, the Aldi social media team, I don't know who they are, but they're not getting paid anywhere near enough. <laughs> they, uh, they're so good, they're so funny. Um they called Marks and Spencer's Marks and Snitches earlier in the week, which is probably like that's as rough as you can get but at the same time they sort of were like um let's set this all aside and try and raise money i think it was for children's cancer charity and marks and spencers were having none of it like i just don't understand where they're drawing the line on um this feud over caterpillar cakes and what whose side are you on rebecca that's the question 
obvious Thomas do, do we have to really ask me like I am on the side of Cuthbert all the way like I just don't understand I feel like if Marks and Spencers this is the worst part that they try to claim Colin as their intellectual property like if they could just get off their high horse like come down from their ivory tower for five minutes you think they'd realize that they actually like tried to claim intellectual property over a chocolate covered Swiss roll with well, a few Smarties on top of it I then just again understand. then again did everybody else not copy the caterpillar from MS? That none of these other places thought of it first. And do you know, I if actually it's so found... easy to think of, why hasn't Colin or a caterpillar cake existed since since the days of the Victoria Sponge? I I don't know, but apparently I did actually hear. Um, I can't remember what um show it was on, but apparently at the time, like I think it was in the seventies that they launched it. Marks and Spencer's really went into like great detail and researched what was the best way. What was the best type of cake for like children's birthday parties? And apparently threw a lot of money at this. So I think they're still salty over the fact that they had to spend a lot of money to figure out to like make a Swiss roll. That's that's what I think. Is the one that gets me uh, as we finish up, Rebecca. The one that gets me from M and S is uh, I I I used to be a big big fan of Percy Pigs, and I still am. But now any on the rare occasions that I do go into M and S. They've really overworked Percy Pig. I mean, the, the, the you can the get pig, anything. Yeah, the poor pig is on Easter eggs. They, there's Percy Pig drinks. There's Percy Pig and friends. There's Percy Frig and enemies. There's, I mean, there's, oh, there's they, all sorts of things. I f- like. I feel like Percy has a case. Um, if he was going to take Marks and Spencers to court, he is being his image is being used and overused by Marks and Spencers. Well, who knows, Rebecca? What we might see soon is Colin and indeed Percy joining some sort of animal rights union in order to to to, to fight for fair and employment of uh, their respective supermarket change. Rebecca Dom and Donaghy, thank you so much for being with us. As a quick final question, what can we look forward to in the good news scoop, which is going to come out tomorrow in all your usual podcast places? Yes, um, final episode of the good news scoop, um, which is a bit mad to be honest, but I've just sort of went, I thought the best way to finish off was to go back and take a look at all the amazing initiatives that are going on around in and around Queen's University campus. So I have people on from the Belfast Girl Gang. I have Queen's Inclusion Society and I have Neve McMullen on. So Thomas, you'll love to hear myself and Neve um, chattering on for, for a while, if not Won't enough. be able to understand a word, Rebecca yes, exactly. Thank you so much for being with us. Listen to The Good News Scoop every Monday in all your usual podcast places. Rebecca, thank you so much. The time is uh, just past 20 to 8, and this is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, let's jump now to India, which has, for the fourth day in a row, set a morbid world record for new coronavirus infections. Nearly 350,000 more cases in the 24 hours up to this morning, Sunday morning, And in that time, another 2,767 lives lost across the vast nation and particularly in the north. Hospitals are overflowing and oxygen levels are dangerously low. Uh, That was responsible, directly responsible for the death of uh, at least 20 patients in Delhi yesterday. Now, um, Arian Luthra is a second year student studying at Coventry University, but he's at home at the moment in Punjab in northeast India. I chatted to him yesterday afternoon. Take a listen to our conversation. Arian, thanks so much for being with us. Why don't we start? Can you give us a bit of an idea, put into context how bad the case numbers have got in India right now? Well, first of all, thank you, Thomas, for having me here. Uh, to put it in numbers, I would say, so India was getting nearly 200,000 cases last week. 
and this week india has seen a sudden surge in the cases now it's going nearly 350000 cases now this was very unexpected because last week we uh, were having 200000 cases and only uh, before that week uh, we were having 150000 cases so the surge was not as big as uh, the surge that we have seen between this week and the previous one the there has uh, definitely been you know uh, require uh, requirements of oxygen hospital bed pyres funeral places and everything and uh, india has abundance of availability of them the problem is that the sudden surge has definitely left india unprepared for it and now india is asking the government uh, is scrambling all of the resources at their disposal along with asking help from you know you can say billionaires of india businessmen that are well off that that can assist and there are cases where people are you know who are not rich are even assisting so i remember two three cases i saw on news uh, three or four days ago there was an auto driver he is uh, uh, so uh, people are declining to you know just uh, uh, take patients to the hospitals because of the covid now this uh, auto driver uh, he has you know transformed his uh, auto in a medical uh, you can you can say in a medical transport he has sealed the compartments uh, he has uh, you know sanitized them and he's asking them that you know this is my number call me i'll take you guys to the hospital for free of cost so now people have started taking initiative for it and, and how uh, give us an idea of uh, the increase in the number of deaths so you know there's obviously cases is one thing i mean um uh, what you're seeing and hearing around you you just mentioned their funeral pyres overflowing hospitals uh, what's the kind of human side to this um you know are in uh, and the kind of the sense of hopelessness is that kind of bleeding in at the moment with the huge numbers of of deaths that are being seen around you yeah definitely so uh, my uh, my grandmother grandmother on my maternal side and my aunt uh, they are both covid positive as of now and they are self isolating and i would uh, like uh, there so there are some distant relatives they actually live in india uh, in delhi so delhi is the worst uh, affected state in india and uh, so out of them so uh, like a pair of father and daughter they tested positive now my sister she was not able to get in hospital bed and unfortunately she died uh, last week and this is the kind of thing that's going on here and that's definitely i would say you were right for a sense of fear and hopelessness in indian people because when you when you know that you know you just need medical assistance uh you just need to go to a hospital check yourself in get some medicines and you can't have that facility that 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 is a, i think a bit of uh, fear you know you you don't want to get covid because you're scared you will not get medical facilities uh you'll not be properly taken care of and i think yeah there is definitely a sense of fear and hopelessness and the deaths are rising so there were like over 300000 cases and there are nearly 2500 deaths each day so yeah according to that number there are like a lot of places where people are like okay you know just uh, try to save our, our family members uh, we don't want medical assistance I, i've seen some people going into fraud, frauds so some people are you know they're saying we have the medicines in black market we'll supply it to you and they're saying that uh, you know all right we'll give you extra money just supply it to us so uh, there are like people like these who are you know taking advantage of others misery and situation how how does our black market work Harry I mean uh, is it somebody that you know uh, sort of round a back street hand over some cash how, how does how does uh, in medicine medical supplies how does a black market operate so right now uh, remdesivir uh, uh, forgive me if i'm pronouncing it uh, wrongly 
but uh, so it's the medicine that's being like really uh, you know in demand in india right now the thing is that chemists who are getting uh, these uh, like medicine available to them and some are not some they are just lying so they are doing you know we have the medicine uh, you want it at hospital we can give you a, a hair right here without a prescription but we'll take more money for it so there are very low number of uh, chemist shops or you know uh, medical shops that have the medicine actually but they're just you know trying to fraud the people that's yeah. how the black markets are working right now i mean um let let's then talk about oxygen because you you mentioned just a second ago i mean that is the kind of uh, if you were to watch the news coverage um in the united kingdom and ireland anyway the main thing that you come away with is problem in terms of oxygen uh, talk to us about that what's the scale of that problem and uh, i mean what is actually the problem is it there's not enough oxygen is it not getting to the right places what's the oxygen story i guess yeah so uh, i'll just start with giving you a couple of numbers so india's production right now uh, daily production is over 7000 tons of oxygen nearly 7500 uh, 7500 uh, 7, tons of oxygen and india's requirement as of april 12th was nearly 4000 tons of oxygen for medical use right now uh, its uh, medical uh, dem- uh, demand is nearly 6800 tons of oxygen so the number is just it rose phenomenally and india i would say they were uh, because if you know there were elections in west bengal there were uh, festivals india was definitely left unprepared for it the thing is that uh, india's production is still very good so india has diverted oxygen from industrial use to medical use the only problem is that being a big country it's hard to get oxygen from one state to another so uh, for example like delhi uh, you must have seen that delhi has uh, a huge shortage uh, shortage of oxygen and beds too the thing with delhi is now delhi is getting oxygen supply from over 1000 kilometers away so that's the thing the uh, the supply structure i would say is not that uh, as much as prepared as the indian government would want the, it to be but again no one expected it to be this bad that the oxygen requirement um, requirement would you know uh, go like above the ceiling uh, this much and this quickly and i would say that's uh, that's an area where uh, india was shaken so it's as much a problem of supply as it is distribution getting it about the place and what what about how the government has handled it uh, we mentioned earlier um you know uh, you just said that there were festivals um the the big story that that i remember seeing from india earlier on this year was uh, the farmers protests so huge numbers of people gathering for that talk us about the last number of months there was a surge what happened in between times and how have the authorities handled this pandemic well uh, i'll first keep about the f- farmers protest because that is like a very huge topic and uh, actually like i'm a farmer too i belong to a, f- a family of farmers my uh, my grandfather used to do farming now he's like uh, out of it but yeah i belong to the state where it's the state of farmers punjab and it has the most number of uh, farmers protesting uh, but i'll f- uh, keep that aside for a bit uh, uh, for festivals uh, so when the festivals were going on in india i remember 2 3 uh, weeks back uh, india was having 100000 cases now i would actually uh, i would definitely say that it was uh, the government's fault a bit uh, the federals and also the state governments uh, the lockdown rules were enforced but you know they could have enforced them on the people in the festival to follow the guidelines it was not and the cases were like i would say not low 100000 is not a low number but 
compared to now, it was a controllable number. Yeah. Why weren't the rules enforced? I suppose, I mean, was was there a sense that, oh, we've dealt with this pandemic, we've nailed it, you know, let's move on? Or, I mean, did it just slip through the cracks? What? Why is it when so many other parts of the world have had crippling effects of pandemic in India, there were festivals of, of, of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going on with relatively, uh, you know, uh, little regulations being enforced? I would say definitely a feeling of triumph was there in every Indian, including me. So, uh, like uh, right now, I, I would be really embarrassed. But uh, in January, even I was breaking some of the COVID guidelines. Like uh, I would forget my mask. I was, uh, I was thinking that you know, okay, it's fine. But the thing is, it's not fine now. You realize it uh, because you know people are dying and because of other people whose uh, mistakes. Uh, they're paying for the other people's mistake. The thing is that uh, there was. A feeling of triumph. So India's recovery rate was more than 99%. India had uh, started very bad, but the uh, recovery grew like exponentially. And that's a feeling where Indians were like, okay, we can, we have beaten this thing, you know, COVID second wave is just, it's uh, not in our, it's not in our country, it's in Europe, it's in South Africa, different variants. Okay, yeah, we got the variant back in January, nothing happened. Okay, we are going to be fine. This was the feeling I would say until the start of March. So everyone has these kind of had had these kind of sentiments, and I think that's uh, part of the reason. What uh, has sorry about this. <laughs> and let's let's talk let's talk politics. Um, so uh, the Boris Johnson actually was meant to be in India, I think, last weekend for a a government visit, diplomatic visit of some kind that was cancelled with Prime Minister Modi. There will be there will be leaders and and. Um, uh, governments across the world that will fall as a result of the pandemic and people's handling of it and in years to come it will be heavily scrutinized i mean uh, is somebody like uh, prime minister modi under threat from this or um uh, is he in a relatively secure position as prime minister well i would say that uh, definitely his numbers would have decreased you know so india has election in 2024 the next uh, prime minister election and his numbers uh, i think will definitely be affected the thing is, uh, I would say that uh, there is no suitable candidate aside from Narendra Modi to uh, for the prime minister uh, position. Uh, he's he's a man with controversial opinions, with contro- who has taken controversial steps, bills, policies, but he's also a man of guts. I mean, I I, I don't uh, I don't think I can relate with his principles, but I would definitely say that I don't see anyone aside from him who can, who would be you know eligible at this time. For this position, he's a he has guts. He doesn't back down. He has uh, definitely forced uh, forces of terrorism. He has replied back in ways, and that was never seen by yeah. India. Because I mean, in the UK, there's quite a lot of a conversation as to, you know, for somebody like Boris Johnson, for example, people, some people saying, oh, he handled the pandemic badly, and then you get other people saying, no, the pandemic came, and he was in a really tough position, and he was doing his best. Uh, you know, uh, what kind of is Modi getting a sympathetic reception from the Indian public, or do you think there's a growing sense of anger uh, that he has allowed uh, as the leader of the nation uh, a second wave of this scale to develop under his watch? I would say that there's definitely a sense of anger more than sympathetic. But, uh, you know, as uh, so I, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, I would say I'm not for any party in India. I don't like any of the current political parties in India. So in my view, it's not just the government mistakes, uh, to be honest, uh, because, you know, being like I said uh, to you, I have broken several guidelines in January 
and i literally saw people in this month like two weeks ago when the, there was no curfew night curfews or no uh, lockdown in india in place people were still breaking guidelines so you know now the people have just found a scape uh, found a scapegoat you know narendra modi and uh, political uh, the political party and uh, like uh, i wouldn't say, i don't want to divulge into this topic much but there's definitely a bit of religious scrutiny for him so he's he's been, he's always been related to you know religious point of views people have found religion as a way to you know i would say uh end or you know just uh, take out the frustration on him right now he he's definitely at fault but to some extent not to full extent people are also responsible um you mentioned darren did you say that uh, i remember your family your sister did you say yeah so a distant uh, sister a distant cousin yeah okay okay and when was that that was last week she got a uh, positive uh, the week before uh, the previous week before the last week and uh, uh, the thing was like so her father he got a bed in the hospital in delhi she was unable to and she got like pneumonia and lumps in her lungs and suddenly the case got very serious and uh, that's what happened that's what led to her i'm very i'm very sorry about that what what age was she she was uh, she was uh, 24 about uh, about 25 year you see i suppose that that brings it home really doesn't it arin in the sense that you know as young people i think sometimes you think oh this is a problem for for older folks and and it's the older people dying from this but i'm you know you watch in india and other places and in brazil where you know there are children babies who are suffering and dying in their thousands you know that your 24 year old um cousin or, or um uh, was so badly affected did, did that kind of bring something home to you yeah definitely so see the thing is like in delhi it's it's a, it's a very polluted city that also leads to the reason and uh, my sister she she used to smoke so that was also uh, it, uh, the health uh, officials have said uh, i think all over the world that it is not good in this time of pandemic and she was still smoking now see it's things like these so like we were very sorry but you know there were like there was a sense of anger in the whole family there was a sense of i would say mixed emotions uh because we we did not expect it to happen to her so suddenly so my uncle he's still positive but he's he's recovering slowly uh so i, I think it's a sense of uh, this is where it's a, a sense of helplessness that kicks in uh you uh you uh, feel that you know you could have done something you could have stopped uh, them from smoking from taking the guidelines more seriously and then you again feel anger and it's just unfair to you to yourself to the person who who suffered from this more important to, to uh, more importantly to her family it's it's just uh, unfair that you know, you're having these emotions Aaron we're going to have to leave it there I'm afraid thank you so much for talking uh, to me uh, and it's very kind of you to open up and come on the show thank, thank you so much thank you for having me Thomas have a really good day Okay that was Aryan Luthra uh, talking to us from Punjab in northeast India yesterday afternoon the time is 3 minutes to 8 uh, this is the scoop on Sunday Okay now this is our first scoop on Sunday since the riots across Northern Ireland which have made headlines across the globe earlier today I chatted to Joel Keys he's a 19 year old loyalist activist from South Belfast He was arrested at the first riots around 3 weeks ago. Now he claims he was unlawfully arrested and is seeking to challenge the PSNI on his arrest. 
I chatted to him about why loyalists were rioting and what he thinks needs to be done next. Uh, take a listen. Joel, thanks so much for talking to me. Why don't we start with the obvious thing? You were arrested three weeks ago. Now you are challenging that with the PSNI as we speak. Um, what, why were you there, Joel? Why were you out rioting? Yeah, so what I was doing was I was on a, I think it was on a cycle or a walk or something, but it was in the town. And I was actually on my way home, um, just the Donegal Roadway, I think you call it, Lisburn Road. Um, obviously, I live in Tokmono, which is just past Sandy Road, um, down the road towards Creighton's Garages. And on the way, I noticed all of the police Land Rovers. So they were all lined up along sort of KFC at Shaftesbury Square. And I just went over to see what was going on. Um, so it was really just curiosity killed the cat there. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what, what happened when you went over, Joel? I mean... Because, I mean, some people would say, you know, uh, the PS and I just don't arrest people who are standing around. Were you involved in some way? Uh, why is it that the PS and I thought that you were in some way a threat to them? Yeah, so the PS and I have actually pretty much admitted that they don't believe I was a threat. They were able to tell my solicitor that the CCTV so far um, corroborates the claim that I was there in a caregiving capacity. So they are sort of, they're aware of the fact that I was not there rioting. Um, I didn't throw anything, I didn't lift anything, I didn't even shout anything. Um, I was actually talking to a lot of reporters down there, just just sort of seeing what was going on. Um, Just watching from the sidelines, I wasn't right in the middle of it. I was standing to the side, keeping an eye on the people that I know. And I think the arrest on me was just an opportunistic one um, that came into Wesley Street or Wellesley Street. And there was about seven people there and they just arrested everyone. Okay, well, uh, we'll sort of follow that up, Joel, and see where it goes. But uh, you have mentioned there you knew people in the riots. You are a young loyalist activist yourself. Looking at this entire period, the number of weeks we've had over the last while, if you had to, as simply as possible, uh, explain what is driving this unrest, how, how would you lay that out? So what I've sort of said is there's been a number of perceived Republican victories over the years. So... We had the flags being taken down from government buildings. Um, We had the prospect of an Irish Language Act sort of floating around. Um, Now we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol. We had the Bobby Story funeral. There's just been a load of these things that have kind of, they've been taken as Republican victories or nationalist victories, nationalist concessions from the government. And unionists have been angry and they've been frustrated. And I think what we're seeing now is there are older people, some men, some just young men, Um, who are telling these kids who are angry and frustrated, who might not understand the details of everything, but who certainly share the same sort of frustrations. They're saying the way that you can help, the solution to all of this is to go out and fight. And the problem is that we have no real leaders coming out and saying, look, that's not the way to do it. Here is what we should be doing. We've plenty of politicians condemning the violence, but we've got none of them providing an alternative for these young people. And so these young people feel like they are at their, their sort of, last stand and if they don't fight they're going to lose everything yeah let's go through some of the things you just mentioned there joel because it is interesting to get this kind of insight the first thing you said you know was perceived republican victories now i wonder first of all you said the word perceived i mean do you think that these are actual republican victories or do you think that they're being sort of presented that way by maybe the kind of people that you mentioned that, that want to see a much more compatible approach. And the other question I suppose a Republican would very easily put, Joel, is that these aren't victories. This is leveling the playing field. You know, um, you could easily say that you know, changes to employment law over the last you know, 50 years to allow 
uh, nationalists and Catholics a fairer opportunities uh, in the workforce. That could be a perceived Republican victory. I mean, are these actually victories or is it just uh, the pursuit of equality? So I think it's obviously down to each individual person's opinion. I don't think they're all necessarily Republican victories. Um, certainly, I think there are there are some that, that I feel were a step too far. I mean, I, I don't see an issue with flying a flag above a building at all. Um, but yeah, so I use the word perceived because there's definitely going to be a disagreement there on, on whether or not they are Republican victories. Um, but I suppose whether or not the Republican victories kind of in, the, in sort of with respect to the riots, it doesn't matter as much. Um, what matters is how these young people are viewing it. And if they're all, if they all think that the Republican victories, if they all think that Republicans seem to be on top in this political battle between green and orange, well then, yeah, they're going to get angry and frustrated. So I think... And, and so that brings us to political leaders, doesn't it, Joel? I mean, mm-hmm. are they responsible for this presentation? Because I want to ask a question about the connection between loyalist communities and political unionism, the DUP, the UUP. But I mean, would you place quite a lot of responsibility on those leaders in terms of how these issues are presented? Indirectly, yeah. I think that it would be a bit foolish to sort of directly blame them for the riots or whatever. But I, I do definitely think that they've played a role in the atmosphere of of anger and frustration because i mean put it like this whenever you're faced with something that you you disagree with for example let's go to i don't know the bobby story funeral thing um people hear about it they're angry and they're frustrated and and what we have is there's no politicians coming out and saying here's how we're going to challenge that going forward it's kind of just left the sizzle um well i mean arlene foster has called for the resignation of the chief constable she That's has a fairly big move. She has, but I mean, that just seems like a, I mean, with respect here, it doesn't seem like that's going to, it's really targeting the issue. I mean, it's easy to call for the PSNI chief constable to, to resign and refuse to meet with them, but what's that really going to achieve in terms of sort of fighting for what it is that we believe in? Um, I think that that's sort of a, it's a cheap, it's a cheap thing that they can do. Um, there'll be a new chief constable in the morning um, I don't think it has any real substance to it. It just looks good on, on paper, yeah. calling for his resignation. Well, I mean, so you've expressed a certain antipathy towards that particular move from Arlene Foster. What's the kind of connection in your eyes between your communities, loyalist communities, and the UUP and the DUP and the big political unionist parties? See, to be honest, and, and I'm talking as a young person here, I can't speak for the older generations, but I think a big problem with... Um, sort of politics in general for unionism is that our politicians are boring. You know, we had Ian Paisley. He was a character. People looked up to him. People respected him. Um, our current leaders, whether you like them or not, whether you agree with their policy positions or not, they, they aren't very exciting. They aren't very energizing. They don't get people, I don't know, they don't prick up young people's ears and sort of have them listening to what they're what they're going to say next. There's no Donald Trumps. There's no John Kennedys. There's no Ian Paisley's, Winston Churchill's. We just have a real... I, I don't want to get personal, but they are just boring. And, and you need exciting politicians to sort of get young do you people think, interested. Do you think the nationalist Republican politicians are less boring or more exciting? Is that why maybe there's a better youth engagement on that side of I think the political it's a, argument here? There's a number of things I think that go for to sort of sit in favour of nationalism with respect to sort of politics in general. But I think one of them is definitely that they have a bit more, you know, they have exciting politicians. Um, I don't really like Michelle O'Neill, obviously, but, you know, she's posting little videos of her out on walks, sort of telling people, 
you know, oh yes, we're still going to keep, you know, I can't don't know the specifics, but I did see a wee video on on Twitter the other day. She was just out for a walk, pretty normal. Um, I, I can see how people could connect with someone like Michelle O'Neill. Um, definitely, yeah. Do you know what's conspicuously missing from this conversation, Joel? Is the word Brexit. Yep. What do you make of that? It, it, what do you make of the fact that we've had a conversation now for nearly nearly seven eight minutes about the riots and not once mentioned Brexit? Because I I really don't feel that it's obviously it's it's sort of the Northern Irish Protocol has pushed it over the edge, but I feel there's a there's a bigger underlying issue. I don't think that Brexit is the sort of main culprit here. I think it's a, a series of um, again, perceived Republican victories that have sort of bottled up, and this is sort of a this is a way of lashing out against all of those times. I don't think it's specific to one situation. I think we could have handled any one of these incidents um, isolated, but one after the other, years in the media of being told that Republicans are getting what they want, they're advancing their cause, and we aren't. That's the other thing. There's no sort of unionist victories, no major unionist victories that are counteracting that. Um, so I think it's sort of a, a wider, bigger issue than than just Brexit, um, definitely. Well, I mean, um, and, and let's talk about Brexit because the the way that you present it is sort of, you know, it, it could have been that or it could have been something else. Um, you voted for Brexit, Joel, or you would have voted for Brexit? I I don't think I would have, actually. I, oh. I wasn't sure. Um, back in, I wasn't old enough to vote. Um, I think I am a Brexiteer now, obviously, and if presented with the option now, I would vote to leave. Um, but that's really just a result of how difficult it seemed the, the EU was making it for the UK to leave. I mean, isn't it extraordinary, though, Joe, in some ways, seeing how difficult um, Brexit has made politics in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland protocol, uh, a resurgence in support, uh, and even people considering support for United Ireland as a consequence of Brexit. Some brilliant polling from Spotlight that we'll be talking about later on later on in today's programme uh, about that. How on earth, Joel, can you come through all of that and still think to yourself that Brexit is a good idea? Basically, again, like I said, back whenever the vote was held, I wasn't sure. I was on the fence. I think there were pros and cons to being in, in the uh, European Union. Um, pretty much my stance at the minute is, regardless of whether you think that the, the outcome of the vote was was ideal, um, it's happened. And I, I don't really see much value in going back and, and re-inspecting it and saying, right, should we leave? Should we do this? I think the decision's been made. So my position as a Brexiteer is very much purely there because we've already had the vote let's just mm-hmm. work it out let's go on ahead let's not question our, ourselves at every turn uh-huh. and uh, and then the northern Ireland protocol uh, presumably you want to see that removed i would I, I understand that it's it's a very difficult um situation um it seems really that there's no way out of this than to have border checks along the Irish Sea or border checks along the, the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland border. Obviously, both of those, in my view, would be in, in breach of the Good Friday Agreement, um, which does beg the question, does it need to be re-examined? I mean, we, I'm no fan of violence and I really I don't want to see a return to those days. But I think it's become very clear that this this Belfast Agreement, it, it, it does not serve... It can't really serve both sides of the community. Like in a situation like this, we either have to pick one side or the other. Um, and, and surely, that's, that's because of Brexit. It's not because of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, hundred um, <laughs> percent. The Good Friday Agreement seemed to work fine up until the, the Brexit sort of situation. 
But at the end of the day, the Brexit decision has been made. And that was a vote for the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom voted to leave. And the Good Friday Agreement outlines that Northern Ireland will remain part of the United Kingdom until a vote is held and mm-hmm. um, you know, come determines otherwise. I mean, obviously, the, the obvious response to that is Northern Ireland voted to stay, but we'll, not, we'll, we'll never resolve that if we go down that path. What would you replace the Northern Ireland Protocol with? I mean, what would your solution if you were uh, in, in up at Stormont Castle at the uh, office of the First and Deputy First Minister, what would you do? I mean, I know it's not ideal, but I suppose my position would be Northern Ireland, as an equal and full member of the United Kingdom, um, should not be treated any differently from the United Kingdom. And if Europe is going to impose border checks um, between sort of nations that are and aren't in the European Union, well, then I think it's it's sort of not our problem. It's 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 down to the Republic. Um, that's, that would be my position. I suppose so, Joel, as we finish up here, you know, by almost any metric, it's less disruptive to have a border and whatever border checks need to happen and whether there can be fewer of them through, you know, little changes, negotiations to Northern Ireland Protocol, whatever checks need to take place, it is surely easier for them to take place in the relatively few airports and ports that there are between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK than on every single back road across hundreds of miles of an Irish border. It's less disruptive and as a consequence, um, uh, you know, uh, easier to manage as a country. Yeah, no, and, and I do get that, but I suppose it, it, it's less about the practicality of the solution here. It, what it's about is um, it's about the inequality and in how the Good Friday Agreement is looked at. I mean, it's held up by nationalists as a supreme document that can't be infringed upon whenever it, it's sort of threatening their cause. But whenever it, it sort of is being violated in the name of nationalism or sort of to, to damage unionism, um, it seems fine and that's fair game. Um, the bottom line is that that document outlines that Northern Ireland will remain a member of the United Kingdom in full. And, you know, that can't happen if there's if there's a distinction made between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Well, I mean, as the final thing, Joel, I mean, what the Good Friday Agreement says is that, that Northern Ireland will remain a part of the United Kingdom unless there's a border poll. There hasn't been a border poll. United Kingdom, uh, Northern Ireland is still uh, a part of the United Kingdom. Surely that's all that really matters. I think, no, it's much more than whether Northern Ireland is part of the UK in name. Um, I think it, it really is a, a bigger issue than that. I mean, I can totally imagine a world where we operate entirely as a united Ireland, but we are still officially, technically part of the United Kingdom. I mean, that's not impossible for me to, to sort of imagine. So I think it's much more than just whether or not we're included on the passport. I think there's, there's deeper issues. Um, and it's just about sort of... It's about that, really. Northern Ireland is part of the UK in full. We are part the, of all. The of irony, of course, Joel, is that you know the UK government plans, voted for, and passed the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yep, and I think um, what that demonstrates is that they don't think that that the demands of unionism need to be taken seriously, um, and that's sort of the other side to these riots. Is it's sort of a big middle finger and saying, "Look, you're going to listen to us, or we're going to make you to." Mm-hmm. Uh, final question, Joel. We've talked about all of the very uh, serious and substantive issues behind this. Uh, I suppose the other way of looking at it is that all of these issues could be sorted out in the boardroom. You mentioned earlier, you know, old men controlling young people in their communities, encouraging them to go out. We've heard many, um, uh, you know, uh, the newspapers have been full of reports of how the PSNI is cracking down on loyalist paramilitaries and they're trying to lash out. Um, how, how much of a role do you think that that plays in the unrest that we've seen over the last number of weeks? So, 
I think it would be it would be foolish and naive to think that this is all happening because the PSNI have engaged in a few drug raids. Um, a lot of these people who are out rioting are very young children. I mean, I think there's kids out there as young as 11 or 12, and they do not care about the uh, drug supply for the paramilitaries. Um, I, I think it certainly plays a role in it, and it certainly provides a, a motivation for these people to... But do they, do they care about the Northern Ireland Protocol? Um, the ones that I've spoken to, no. Um, they're right because they're bored. They've been in lockdown for over a year, and they just want something to do. Uh, and that's sad, and I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but that's the reality. And I'm talking particularly about the very much younger ones. Um, I think also there's, there's sort of a, there's a theory that I've been working on that... Uh, it's in the paramilitary's interest to create a distrust um, between the unionist people and the PSNI because, you know, they, they kind of want to offer themselves, in my view, as a solution to their own problem. So I think what we're going to see is if, you, if, if, if the distrust between unionists and the PSNI continues, um, I think it's very real that we're going to see a, a, a sort of... <sighs> I don't know what the word is, but kind of, oh, someone's burgled your house. Don't go to them. Come to us. The boys will take care of you. You know, like like a sort of like a very complicated power grab, in my view. Um, and again, I don't think that's the whole thing. I don't think that's the, the big hidden agenda. But it's certainly, I think, I think it would be silly to think that they haven't thought of that um, and that they're not sort of considering that. Mm -hmm. Um we could kind of talk all day, Joel, in some ways. I wonder, as, a, as an actual final question, I promise this is the final one, your prediction for the next number of weeks, the, the, some, I'm not sure if the unrest has died down, um, although I, I noticed that last night there was a man shot in, in Mount Vernon, so clearly there's some serious underlying issues here. Yeah. Um, do you think that we'll start to see a continuation of the kind of rioting that was making the headlines up at Lanark Way, for example, and elsewhere across Northern Ireland, or do you think that that's kind of subsided and it can be kind of kept down as such? So I think uh, the important thing here for me is to think, you know, if I'm saying that most of these young people are because they're bored, um, if that's my claim, then then I do believe that we're going to see the riots die down a bit simply because the kids are back at school. You know, They're going to have something to do. They're not going to be ours to go out and, and sort of riot. Um, I don't think that, that, that the rats are going to end completely. I think that people are still angry and they're still frustrated. Um, you know, it's baked into our culture, no surrender. So I, I can't see everyone sort of laying down the sticks and stones at the minute. Um, but I do think that they're going to get a, a, a good bit better now that young people are back at schools. Um, and it largely depends on sort of, it largely depends on a lot of things. That's why this question is hard to answer. I mean, I know the paramilitaries have denied involvement. I do, I do believe from the person that I spoke with, I don't think that the, the paramilitary leadership um, were involved. But the issue is they're not really doing anything against it either. And I know whether or not the leadership was involved, I know that there was paramilitary activity down at Sandy Row. Um, and so, you know, it would not have been difficult for the leadership to step in and say, right, boys, enough is enough. So, yes, I, I don't believe that they're directly involved in the planning and organization of these things, but they're certainly sort of sitting back and watching uh, uh, with, with open eyes. Okay, well, Joe, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for coming on. Many people will disagree with you. Many people will agree with you, but we will have to uh, follow this story as it continues over the next number of weeks, and we'd love to have you back on. Joel, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you. That was Joel Keyes there, who's a 19-year-old loyalist activist. As I say, a great many people will disagree with that, and we will be following that story with different perspectives over the next number of weeks. 
Um, let's move on now. The time is 18 minutes past eight, and this is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, now, politicians at Stormont passed a motion on Tuesday calling for a ban on gay conversion therapy. Uh, the non-binding motion argued that it is fundamentally wrong uh, to view the LGBTQ community as needing a fix or a cure, and the motion passed by 59 votes to 24. Yesterday, Bethany Moore, who's just joined me in the call, um, the SU welfare officer-elect, wrote an opinion piece all about this issue for The Scoop. You can read it now. It's uh, jumping up on our social media accounts, so you can read it again there. And I'm delighted that Bethany is with me in the call. Hi, Bethany. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'd really encourage people to go and read your opinion piece because it is um, you've really opened up and you've given a, a, a very insightful personal story. And I think it is definitely worthwhile people reading it if they are also going to watch uh, this debate over the last week and as it continues about conversion therapy. In the interest of giving people an idea about what's in that article, why don't we start with you at the very beginning? So you, you write in there about when you kind of first realized that you were LGBTQ uh, plus. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I first properly realized that uh, I was LGBTQ plus around age eight. And it really started off when um, I was a child, I was just so invested in TV shows and films about women, you know, the likes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Charm, Charlie's Angels, loved all that type of stuff. Um, and I just loved how these women were heroes in their own right, how independent they were, you know, they were the creators of their own story. And I also admired their beauty in a ways that most of my peers didn't at the time. So in hindsight, now you kind of look back and go, yeah, okay, that's where my queer journey starts off. So when I was around 10, people started to mention, you know, who fancied who in the playground. And I remember just not being interested in boys the way that my friends were. I actually remember my friend asking me, you know, what boy do you like in the class? And I panicked and I practically called out every single name on the register of <laughs> of boys so she wouldn't suspect anything um, and then at age 13 I started to date other girls for a while I thought I was you know lesbian and identified as such um, and then at age 16 I met my current partner who is just so fantastic and realized um, I was bisexual and started to go with um, with him um, so it's it's been a bit of a journey but really that that's kind of it uh, in, in the short term I suppose. What age are you now Bethany? 22. 22. All right. Okay. Um, I wonder, I mean, talking to other young people in the kind of LGBTQ plus community, do you think that these are common experiences, the ones that you're articulating? Yes, they are so common. Like just today, I actually saw a tweet about Charlie's Angels and it had thousands of likes and replies being like, this is, this is where I kind of realized that I loved women. Um, I'd say they're so common. Like in 2010, Stonewall reported that the average age at which people come out as gay, lesbian or bisexual had fallen over the last four decades. Now we're a decade on and even I can see an increase in young people coming out. And I just, I just think it's so fantastic. They are so accepting of themselves and of each other. And it's just so heartwarming to know that they'll grow up in the North now where they have equal rights from, from the start of their lives. You mentioned the North there. I wonder, I mean, how do you think, and this is a difficult thing to judge, of course, because every individual only you know, lives one life. Um, how do you think that it is different for somebody like yourself to be growing up, finding out about your sexuality in Northern Ireland as opposed to elsewhere? I mean, does does the overriding politics make a huge difference or at the end of the day, 
is it always kind of a, a deeply personal and, and slightly confusing and difficult process? I, I mean, I think uh, yeah, yes and no. Um, do you know, I think realizing you're, you're queer is always going to be a, a process. And I think that's because heteronormativity and cisnormativity are so, so ingrained in society as a whole. Um, but in terms of the North, I think it is such a tough place for queer people to love. You know, it, it has gotten better, but homophobia is so ingrained in our institutions. You know, it's in our education, it's in our healthcare, it's in Stormers itself. And I think if you can look at how the DUP um, are still the biggest party here and look at their track record, the things they've said, you see that we still have a long way to go here. You know, anti-LGBTQ plus bigotry is really, really normalized here. That's on both a personal and a political level. You know, I'm, I'm from Derry and last summer in Derry, a gay couple was attacked because they'd actually tried to step in and intervene to a girl who was being subject to misogyny. Uh, there are a lot of amazing, progressive, fantastic people here but we often don't see them in the spotlight. Sometimes people don't see them in any light. And so a lot of us leave and I don't blame anyone who does. I, I want to ask, you know, and engage in the politics in just a second. Um, I wonder though, uh, and this is something that's very difficult to kind of judge if you're, if you're anyone else, how does the very notion of uh, conversion therapy make you feel as somebody who uh, identifies as bisexual? Yeah, it, it makes me feel sick to my stomach. It makes me feel completely enraged. Queer people do not need to be cured because we're not sick. We don't need to be fixed because we're not broken. You know, the International Rehab Council for Torture Victims has made it clear this practice is not scientific. It's a form of torture and it needs to be banned on a global scale. During the debate, representatives in Stormont were horrified to hear that 7% of LGBTQ plus people had been offered or undergone conversion therapy and it's double that amount for trans people. So this affects the entire LGBTQ plus community. It affects members of any and every age. It's left so many of my community members traumatized and it's just awful. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think, you mentioned the DUP earlier, and I want to put to you in just a minute, you know, one of the, one of the principal arguments that comes from uh, a, a particular viewpoint of, of sort of conservative and Christian right there. Um, this is a motion that was put forward in Stormont by two male straight UUP politicians, Doug Beattie and, and Robbie Butler. I suppose some people would go, oh, I, I didn't, I perhaps didn't expect that. What do you think that says about where Northern Ireland is now, the very complicated kind of politics? And maybe does it say something about the assumptions that we make about people or, or communities? Yeah, well, ooh, uh, I have a bit, I have a bit to, to go on here, but um, our politics, I find very disheartening, full stop. But this was the one for us, so, you know, I'll take it. Um, I love seeing the LGBTQ plus um, solidarity, but I would like to see more minority voices in Stormont as a whole. I think queer people deserve a chance at our own representation. Um, I also think Michael Pam Palmer of the UUP deserves a shout out here. He's a queer member of the UUP. He actually is the one who brought this issue forth. He brought it to the youth wing and then ultimately to the main party. Um, I think groups like Brand Conversion Therapy, Transgender and I, the Rainbow Project, so on deserve a shout out here. Um, they do the work day in and day out when there's no cameras around. Um, I did see some quotes of 
you know, about members of Stormont being like gay icons when they're they're not queer, they're straight. So I think it's important we we shouldn't idealize people too quickly. Um, in terms of the UEP, I think the band's fantastic. I think what they've done here is fantastic. Um, and it's necessary, but also what are these people doing to challenge their party colleague to commission abortion services and to improve healthcare services for trans people? These are queer issues too. And across all parties, we need to be looking at everything they're doing. Do they support the call for unbiased scientific relationship and sex education? How do they vote when it comes to housing and benefits? How do they feel about the UK and the South's immigration policies? Because these things are all queer issues. So while this is fantastic, we also have to look at it, you know, a bit deeper and on a bit of a wider scale. But as I said, it's a win, so, you know, I'll take it. Yeah, take the win, yeah. Um, what about the kind of argument, I suppose, Bethany, which is that uh, none of the parties are in favour of a conversion therapy in the way that it might have been represented uh, a number of years ago, electric shocks and the sort of thing that sometimes you actually hear you know, from America. And it's quite horrifying and frightening. None of those parties are in favour of that. The extent of any opposition is that they wanted what they called religious freedom and the freedom uh, to, to, to pray with a minister or a priest or whoever it is. What would you say to that argument? Well, people like to talk about the freedom of religion a lot, but the freedom from religion can't be overlooked either. At the minute, 20% of adults in the North aren't attached to any religion, and we all deserve our views to be uh, protected and respected as much as anyone else's. All these people who mention religious freedoms seem to be the same people who want to restrict queer people's freedoms, and that irony seem, seems to be really lost in them. Queer people deserve their rights to a life free from degrading and inhumane torture, their rights to marriage, their rights to start a family, and ultimately, their right to happiness. We don't need the gay to be prayed away. We don't need to be subject to derogatory rhetoric about temptation and sin and lifestyle choices. And the thing is, when we make amendments, when we leave room for gray areas for this issue, we ultimately leave room for queer people to be harmed. And that's not acceptable for me. I believe everyone has the right to religion, to practice their own religion. And there are queer people of faith too. Um, you know, there's some, some amazing work on that as well. But ultimately, there just isn't room for a grey area here. We need to protect our queer people. Um, and, you know, it's it's more about queer protection and queer lives than it is about, um, you know, bigoted people's feelings. A final question here that speaks to my ignorance rather than anything else. Uh, uh, Bethany, how would you describe the difference between saying uh, LGBTQ plus community and queer? What does that word mean for you? Because there's a sort of element of reclaiming that. And, and I'm just intrigued to get uh, a sense of that from you. Um, yeah, well, I, I like I like both terms. I think for me, I use queer so much because it's an umbrella term. You know, um, queer basically means you know not not to the norm. And mm. for me, that's you know reclaiming it. It's going against the heteronormativity of the society we live in. Um, I'm just really comfortable with using the term queer. Not everyone is, and that's okay. Um, I think in terms of if you're not a queer person, maybe just stick to the term LGBTQ+. Um, if you know someone that's queer, you know, and maybe ask them, how do you feel about me calling you queer? How do you feel about me using this word? Um, it has been used as a slur a lot, but yeah, I just love calling myself queer. Um, really, that's that's a personal thing for me. I'm here and I'm queer and I'm loud and I'm proud about it uh, and everyone's just going to have to deal with it. So It is I'm easier gonna... to rhyme. It is easier to, yeah, yeah. It's easier to rhyme. Yeah. Uh, Bethany, thank you so much uh, for chatting to us. You can read Bethany's piece on conversion therapy on the Scoop news site. Bethany, thank you very much for being with us. The time is 29 minutes past eight. This is The Scoop on Sunday.
Okay, let's crack on to something um, uh, very different. We're joined in the call now by Lauren McCann, host of The Sporty Scoop, which is out every Wednesday in all your usual podcast places. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, how are you? Um, now, Lauren, this you're going to have to do a lot of explaining to me in this <laughs> session here uh, because I am not somebody who is terribly well engaged in the world of football. Over the last week, we have seen the rise and the, the, the oh-so-delicious uh, fall of the European Super League. Um, the first question I'm going to ask is, and I think a lot of people have, have, have probably followed this story, this was a PR disaster. I mean, the entire thing almost fell apart as soon as it was proposed. Why do you think that is? And do you think that there was ever any hope of this proposal getting off the ground? I mean, it's just been the most chaotic week in football I've personally seen, and there's been a lot, but this is up there with a lot. I think, yeah, a PR disaster is just what it was. You know, there was no person to front this whole facade. You know, they put out a statement. Um, It was pretty bland. It said the clubs that were backing it, and I had some quotes from the owners who put this proposal in place, but, you know, none of the owners were willing to speak publicly until John Henry came out and apologised after it all fell apart. So that was one of the big things. And no, nobody was consulted in this. You know, this was owners being greedy. Um, none of the players, none of the staff knew until, you know, a matter of hours before it was released to the public. None of the fans were consulted. And, you know, I think that's what has been highlighted here, that if fans aren't involved in the clubs that they love mm-hmm. and in such huge decisions, then nothing can go ahead because mm-hmm. the fans as well as governing bodies were going to take all steps necessary to ensure it wouldn't go through. You're a young person who's deeply, deeply involved uh, and adores football. What was your kind of gut feeling reaction to the whole thing and why it was sickening to to be quite honest with you you know as a Liverpool fan and you know it's a club steeped in tradition in the Premier League and in the Champions League and you know steeped in tradition of the fans being at the front and centre of the club and the connection between the fans and the players and the manager especially in this time you know with Jurgen Klopp at the helm it's been amazing but the owners just seem you know they've made repeated mistakes with Liverpool um, trying to increase ticket prices trying to trademark the name and this is the biggest one of them all you know it, it just seems that they're disconnected that they don't understand the club even though they've been here for almost a decade and I know it's the same with you know what Manchester United they've always had a hatred of the Glazers for the way they've been running the club the same at Arsenal with Stan Kroenke and the European Super League has been proposed it's been you know, knocking around for years and it is not going to go away after this. But the timing of it as well, obviously the clubs have said it's in light of the pandemic because they're suffering so much. But this would this proposal would probably collapse the whole football pyramid and that would just put in danger, you know, thousands of clubs, never mind just these big six. Did you expect the kind of universal um, rejection of the proposal uh, antipathy towards what was being suggested. I mean, it's really quite unusual, I suppose, to see somebody like Boris Johnson, uh, Oliver Dowden at the dispatch box, being so uh, vociferously against what is, at the end of the day, uh, a matter for private football clubs. Yeah, I mean, I still haven't spoken to one person that has thought that this would be a good idea. You know, it, it is a universal hatred of the idea because it would be a closed shop league. You know, when you look in and you delve deeper into what was proposed, it was 15 founding clubs. Five clubs would be invited each each year to take part. They hadn't said how that would be, um, you know, decided. But 
there was no relegation. There was one winner and all these clubs would just take the money they got from playing these games and that would be it. And, you know, that's not for people. That's not what football's about. It's this, you know, relegation. It's, if you don't have it, what's the integrity of the mm-hmm. league? You know, trying to stay in there and all just the big clubs playing one another, you know, it just gets boring and it's definitely not what people wanted. And at this time, you know, when the Premier League's the most watched league in the world and the TV deals are already through the roof, you know, it just seems like mm-hmm. a stupid decision to put the plug on that. Let me ask you two more questions about the European Super League before we uh, get a bit of a roundup for uh, what else, if anything, is going on <laughs> in the world of sport. The first of them is, um, um, uh, were you surprised uh, Lauren, I mean, for some people, as somebody outside of sport, I'm not terribly interested in football, what, you know, it seemed to me that people were suddenly acting very surprised that football uh, is a lot about money. Did that come as of much a surprise to you? Is that is suddenly the, the scales falling from people's eyes that, oh, turns out actually football, there's a lot of money involved? No, I think it's been happening that way for years. And, you know, as I was talking about the broadcasting in the Premier League you know that just highlighted it even during the pandemic when Sky were trying to get people to fork out £15 for a one-off game um, you know it just showed the greed that is around the transfer fees obviously have gone off the scale in recent years and you know it's no coincidence that coincidence that this proposal was announced the day before UEFA were going to announce their own reforms to the Champions League and this was obviously a ploy to get more money from UEFA because they, um, these big clubs don't think they're getting enough revenue mm-hmm. from the competition because they are, you know, what attracts people to watch the, mm-hmm. the Champions League. So, you know, I'm not surprised and UEFA haven't come out of it um, easily either. You know, they've been at the forefront of this as well. The grade, it's from top to bottom in football. And, you know, I think this week just really brought home <clears> to maybe people like yourself outside of football to see this the game you know it's going into the wrong hands and it is these american a lot of the american owners are wanting to americanize the sport and just you know run this as if it's a business when it's not it's a football and do club. you think lauren you know um do you think the genie's out of the bottle do you think pandora has left the box no there's i mean there, there are government proposals and i always look at these things as you'd expect from a kind of you know pol- politics and policy point of view more government proposals about perhaps reforming the way that fans are represented on the management boards and uh, in 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 on the trustees of these big big football clubs do you think the genius out of the bottle and do you think some of these clubs might end rue the day that they even considered the european football league because suddenly uh, people are realizing just how much money is involved and perhaps there might be major reform on the way I do to a certain extent, but at the same time, you know, getting these fans on board, a lot of these owners have been in the clubs for years now and they haven't yet had them on board to consult about such decisions. And, you know, as well, a lot of fans are wanting their owners out, but because of the money, like a club like Liverpool are now worth nearly two billion, who's going to buy out the owners from that? You know, it's almost impossible unless a state comes in to buy the club. So I do think, you know, there's going to be huge pressure and these owners are not going to be able to live this down. You know, we saw at the weekend, the protests from Manchester United fans, from Arsenal fans, this is real anger, but this has been anger that's been built up for years now. And, you know, hopefully the government do intervene. Um, You know, in Germany, they have a 50 plus one rule where they do have to have, um, you know, at least 50% of the club is yeah. run by the and fans. And notably, none of the German clubs were involved in this European Super mm-hmm. League. Lauren, let's talk about some other things in the world of sports. Uh, final round of the fixtures before the split uh, Irish Premier League. Give us an idea. 
Yeah, so it's getting touchy at the top for Linfield. Um, they lost 3-2 to Glenavon at the weekend and that coupled with Glen Torn winning and Coleraine winning means the gap at the top is remains seven points. But with the post-split fixtures, you know, Linfield are going to have it really tough. They're coming up against all of the other top five teams and they have struggled in some of the games this season. So it's going to be really interesting at the top as well. You know, everywhere is just competitive in the league. Cliff Mullive, leapfrog Lauren in the fourth place. Um, They won 5-0 at Carrick at the weekend and Lauren failed to defeat against Glen Torn. And then... And, in... uh, and give us an idea of rugby, uh, Lauren, Six Nations. Yeah, so Ireland women were in action and they finished third in the Women's Six Nations. They beat, beat Italy in the third place playoff. Um, it was a really good achievement for Ireland. You know, Italy had had a good campaign as well as Ireland, so it was really good to get such a comfortable win, um, 25-5 in Dublin. And, you know, they were defeated by France, which meant they went into the third place playoff. But um, France went on to lose the final against England, who were just terrific. They've won the six, Women's Six Nations for the third year in a row now. As a final question, Lauren, uh, there was I, I noticed that the uh, the 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 women's Irish women's the Six Nations is on the BBC this year. Um, now, whether it has been in the past, I don't know. As a young woman who's interested in sport, what does it mean to you to see women's sport at the top level represented, um, probably more than it ever has been before, and given more attention than it ever has before? Um, I think it's been long overdue, to say the least, you know, and women are finally able to shine on the big stage. You know, we've seen with Ireland women, we've seen with Northern Ireland women being on the BBC for their historic Euro win, you know, which I've talked about today, it feels like at this stage. And it's just amazing to see women getting the representation that they deserve at the highest level. Yeah, 30 seconds. Uh, Lauren, what can people look forward to in the Sporty Scoop on Wednesday? Um, so we're going to have a big discussion about the Irish League ahead of its conclusion in our final one. And we'll also have a very special guest who we're not tempting fate, so we can't name yet, but it's meant to be a blockbuster name. Oh, keeping it on the your temptation. Toes. Oh, you, you really are spoiling us. Thank you so much, Lauren, from the Sporty Scoop. Thank you for being with us. You can listen to the Sporty Scoop Wednesdays in all your usual podcast spaces. Lauren, thank you so much. Uh, right, let's move on. Um, nice and quickly, the time is uh, 20 minutes to nine. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, let's jump now back to the QUB SU Awards. Alongside our very own Dara Tibbs, head of tech for Queen's Radio and the man who manages to broadcast all of these Scoop shows week after week. Alongside Dara, uh, Frances Logan, president of Belfast Marrow, was also recognised for her work this year. Thank you so much for being here, Francis. Listen, um, this is something that I don't know an awful lot about. Um, and I've been hearing about, uh, you know, what bone marrow means, and what it does and Anthony Nolan and all of this kind of stuff. Pretend I'm very foolish and, and please do explain to me what is it that Belfast Bone Marrow does? So firstly, thank you for having me on. Um, and Belfast Marrow, I suppose there's really two main branches to what we do. Uh, the first branch, as you said, is that we sign people up uh, between the ages of 16 and 30 to the stem cell register. Uh, so when somebody has blood cancer or another blood disorder and their treatment hasn't worked for them, often their last chance at treatment and their last chance at life really is a stem cell transplant. Um, so some people are able to find like a, a match, a tissue type match for that transplant from within their family. But unfortunately, the majority of people have to come to the Anthony Nolan stem cell register to find an unrelated donor willing to, to donate their stem cells. So that's really the main part of our work is signing people up 
um, as many people up to the register as possible to mm. increase increase the, the chance that people can find that match. And it's so valuable because it really is life-saving. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've heard stories about this before. Uh, what happens if somebody signs up? I mean, talk us through the kind of process and talk us through, you know, um, uh, the value that somebody can give to somebody else that they don't know and the life that they can save uh, just as, uh, as doing something as simple as signing up. Exactly. It's so easy to sign up. So I, I can shout out the uh, the website that you have to go on. Uh, it's a five minute online form. You fill in a few details about your medical history, your height, your weight, things like that. Anthony Nolan will send you out a little swab kit. So you swab the inside of your mouth, uh, your saliva swab and send it back to them. So that would be you on the register until you're 61st birthday um, and actually when you sign up it's really unlikely that you'll ever be found to be a match for somebody uh, it's less than a one percent chance so if you if you are found to be a match it's really important that you answer that call from Anthony Nolan answer <laughs> answer that email um, and if you are found if you are asked to donate uh, there's two main ways so the majority of people would donate in a really similar process to giving blood uh, so you would be given a few injections uh, the day before the donation day uh, just to stimulate your body to produce more stem cells um, and on the donation day it's as I said a similar process to giving blood the majority of people say that, that the worst part of it is um, that it's a little bit boring it takes about four hours to watch but Netflix or something, um, but that that's about the worst part. Um, and then the second way that you might be asked to donate, depending on the condition of the patient, really, um, is through your um, bone marrow. So it's about a thirty-minute procedure under general anaesthetic. Um, most people say that, like when you wake up, it feels like you've been to the gym too hard, like too paracetamol, um, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But with that five minutes that it takes you to sign up to the register, you could really save someone's life. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about you. The pandemic has been difficult as enough, enough as it is for most of us to live our fun and nice and social life. This is really mm -hmm. valuable work that you're trying to do and the other people involved in this industry. What's it been like over the last year during this pandemic? What have you been up to? So uh, well, on a normal year, we would usually hold events around campus and um, we would go to schools across Northern Ireland, signing up hundreds of people to the register. Um, and in the past year, that's really been devastated in terms of the numbers. Um, I think last year we signed up about 1,400 people. It's incredible. Um, and this year it's barely 100. Uh, so that really means that blood cancer patients are, are less likely to find that much for, for their treatment. Uh, so we really turned our attention to fundraising. That's an incredibly important part of uh, the work that we do. Trying to think of innovative ways to raise money for Anthony Nolan, um, involve as many people as possible. So, I, I mean, I heard you talking about calling the Caterpillar earlier on. So very topical. We had a bake your own calling competition near the start of the year, actually, before all the drama recently. Um, Did they get sued now? Yeah. <laughs> um, we had a drag queen bingo uh, around Valentine's yeah. Day with Lady P, which is amazing. Um, and we've recently printed our own recipe book. Um, so if anybody's interested in buying that, definitely do. That's uh, with recipes that uh, societies across Queens have submitted. Um, so that's really the, the main thing that we've been doing. And I mean, we've been blown away by how generous people are both with their their time and their money it's it's been incredible but it's really those donor recruitment figures mm -hmm. that we're really looking to boost how did you find your way into this particular area um 
I was actually diagnosed with blood cancer when I was 19. Um, so I had to drop out of university over in Scotland um, and come back to Belfast for quite intensive chemotherapy treatment. So um, it's really been over the, the last four years then that um, the people that I met both as an inpatient in, in city hospital and as an outpatient as well, whose treatment really hadn't gone to plan and who were waiting on um, someone to donate their stem cells to them. And I mean, I wanted to do everything I could, of course. So as soon as I came to Queens, I was very lucky to get into Queens. Um, as soon as I came to Queens, that was the first thing I wanted to do. I like I made a, a beeline for Belfast Marrow in the Freshers' Fair and yeah. really kind of worked from there. <laughs> That's, it's amazing because it means you've kind of seen the, you've seen both the terrible devastation that that this illness can leave in its wake but you've also seen the enormous value and happiness that can be derived from doing something as simple as setting up to a register uh, and, and and a quick swab to work out if you could save somebody's life mm -hmm. yeah exactly and that's why i'm always shouting about it to, to anybody my friends are sick of hearing me telling them to <laughs> sign up to register but i really would encourage anybody listening um it's so quick and it's so easy to to potentially save a life okay final thing remind people where can they go if they want to get involved Yes, I, I didn't say that. So uh, to sign up to the register, it's anthonynolan.org forward slash Belfast Marrow. I would definitely say follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We would love you to volunteer with us if you're not eligible to, to sign up to the register. Like myself, I can't donate because of my medical history. Um, but we will be doing plenty more fundraisers, plenty more donor recruitment events uh, in the future. And we, we would love to have you involved. Francis, thank you so much um, and congratulations again uh, for all the work that you've been doing. It's been a pleasure to chat. Um, we will get uh, your various Twitters up on our social media so people who are interested, they can find them there as well. Thank you so much. Congratulations again. Uh, Francis Logan there from the Belfast Bone Marrow, recognised for her work this year at the QUB SU Awards. The time is 13 minutes to nine. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, as we find ourselves meandering towards 9pm uh, this week, uh, the BBC Spotlight programme published a slew of polling to mark the centenary of Northern Ireland. Here to chat about it in a little bit more detail is Stuart Hughes, chair of the Young Unionists, the youth wing of the UUP, and Kevin McCann, who is chair of the All-Ireland Sinn Féin Ogre. Stuart and uh, Kevin, thank you so much for being with me i'm not sure about you i watched this polling coming out and it was poll after poll after poll after poll and i couldn't quite <laughs> couldn't quite keep up um why don't we start with this issue of the centenary i suppose i will read out all the different pieces of polling don't worry so you don't need to remember them all off by heart poll for northern ireland should the centenary be celebrated yes was 40 percent no 45 percent and i don't know at 15 percent Stuart, I wonder what that says. You're a unionist, young uh, UUP youth wing. Um, more people think that the, the, the partition of Ireland, the centenary, isn't something to be celebrated than think it should be celebrated. Where does that leave somebody like you? Um, well, obviously, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't personally uh, agree with those sentiments, but I, I think what it draws attention to is how we actually celebrate events this year or commemorate events this year and the manner in which we, we do it. And I believe there was another question associated with this to do with um, if we were highlighting business and sporting and cultural uh, sort of things that had happened over the past century. And there's much more positive uh, sort of um, agreement that, that that would be a good thing. Um, but I, I, look, it's not a surprise 
to me necessarily that um, given the current political climate and what has happened over the past five years, that there's maybe not as such an appetite on an issue which is which with you know all honesty is clearly still a, a divisive one for many mm-hmm. people. But I think it, it does send a message to unionism that it does need to be careful about how uh, how we celebrate and mark these events. Um, and ensure it's done in the right way. What you've articulated there, Stuart, is I suppose a division that's come up uh, quite a lot in these kind of conversations, which is, is there a distinction between celebrating the centenary of Northern Ireland, that is to say, you know, the formation of Northern Ireland, and celebrating Northern Ireland? Um, do you think it's possible to separate those two things, separating kind of partition from the people and, and, and the work and the, 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 the spirit of Northern Ireland? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. Look, I think if you take a century of any entity anywhere in the world, there is undoubtedly going to be positives in that, uh, as well as as negatives that some like to draw to. So I think it would be foolish to suggest there's nothing to uh, mark over the past century, whether that's personal achievements, achievements by sporting teams, um, what, or, or what individuals have done in so many different fields. So I think it, it is possible to do that. Um, I, and I think anybody could recognise that even if you were <laughs> against Northern Ireland existing or against its for, formation, there are still things to mark there a century mm-hmm. on and, Ke- and we should be doing that. Keevan, what about that? Is it possible to distinguish between celebrating Northern Ireland, its people, its sport, its business ventures, the extraordinary... Uh, inventions, for example, come to mind that have come from Northern Ireland. Is it possible to distinguish that from a, a partition and the formation of Northern Ireland as uh, a state, if if we want to call it that? Well, well, of course, I like I, I'm an Irish Republican. I will always see those things uh, within the context of of um, Ireland being united. So that, that as the same way um, uh, Stuart might see those celebrations of of things happening in the north, he might see those in a wider UK context. Of course, I'm going to see those in the context. Of Ireland, but I think it's important to note for Republicans anyway. There's there's certainly nothing to be celebrated in terms of partition. I mean, this is the usurpation of national democracy. It was an anti-democratic partition of an island that had voted overwhelmingly uh, for independence, um, and as a result of partition, we had significant uh, sectarian conflict that broke out um, afterwards in a series of pogroms in the 1920s, carried out in the 1930s, and right through the 1960s. Mm-hmm. For Republicans anyway, partition. What it led to was was fifty years, half a century, uh, of a sectarian state um, and a state which which did not want uh, that significant mind, but, minority. But part even of it. take taking that into context, I mean, are you able? And if the answer is no, say no. Are you able to distinguish that from I don't know, uh, you know, the success of somebody like Carl Frampton, uh, George Best, uh, the, the many actors uh, appearing on Line of Duty, for example, which is on this evening. Um, uh, that come from this place. I mean, is it possible to distinguish between those two things for you or are the two just forever uh, intertwined in a way that it's impossible uh, to separate? No, and certainly, I mean, Carl Frampton is, is an amazing role model, particularly for young people. And I think it's, it's quite interesting you brought up someone like George Best, who in himself, in terms of a football context, was a, was a United Irelander who wanted to see it, an All-Ireland football team. And of course, anytime he was speaking about this island, he would have always said that, that it was impossible to separate um, the two different entities, that he had always viewed them as, as one island. But certainly, you know, celebrating celebrating sporting achievements, celebrating literature, literary uh, achievements and scientific developments is something that should always be done. But it doesn't have to be done in the context of a rabble-rousing sort of flag-waving hmm. um, 
situation uh, in which you in which that we would. Well, open fairness, it up. I don't think I don't think Stuart's suggesting that, but I know you weren't suggesting it. He was suggesting that. Let's move on well, to the next piece. Let's let's move on to the next piece of polling, guys. Um, uh, Northern Ireland wide, the question is: Should Northern Ireland stay in the UK? Yes, forty nine percent. No, forty three percent. And I don't know eight percent. Um, Stuart, what do you make of that? That means that when I don't knows are included in the stats, the support for Northern Ireland remaining in the UK is less than 50%. It's within the margin of error, but it's 49%. It's not a majority. Yeah, and again, I think if we look at recent elections, um, that 49% is, is higher than what votes for uh, Unionist uh, parties, certainly in the last general election anyway. So again, you know, I, I don't take it as a huge surprise. I take it as quite a positive, to be honest. Um, uh, that you know we're pulling that 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 question still pulls higher higher than what unionist parties are pulling in um, in electoral terms. I think. <laughs> do you think? I, do you really I, think I, it's a positive that it's beneath the majority? For you, that is. Well, I, I think if we look at elections, um, which are our best barometer, and I, I would look to them more so before I look at a lot of polls, to be honest. Um, it, it's clear that we're in a, a situation at the minute where there's roughly forty percent supporting unionist parties, roughly 40% supporting nationalist parties. And then uh, I suppose that 20% of other or whatever you want to call them in the middle. Um, So I I don't think it's particularly a surprise of any sort. You know, we know where we are in this. There are challenges for unionism. But I think the message I would take from it is despite all those challenges, despite the narrative in the media, and even despite Brexit, um, the union still is, is... uh, pulling higher than a United Ireland and, and the before, conditions as set out for a border clearly still aren't being met. And, and before we, before I ask, put the same sort of question to Kevin, what does that poll tell you about the task ahead of unionism? Well, I, I think the, the task for unionism and nationalism is very clear. The, the constitutional future will be decided by those who are, I suppose, not aligned at the moment. That's, that's where we are. Um, that's the people we need to be speaking to and how we speak to them is speaking about the future, focusing on the issues, the everyday issues such as health and education and the economy that affect everyone and, and working on them for the betterment of everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how we move Northern Ireland forward for everyone. Let me put that poll to Keevan and Keevan, I'll add into the mix the same question, should Northern Ireland stay in the UK? When polled in the Republic of Ireland, let me give you the results of that. Yes, 27%. Uh, no, so that's people who want the United Ireland, no, 51%, and yeah. I don't know, 22%. Now, uh, as I mean, uh, I would have said, Kevin, in a purely objective sense, I was surprised at that 51%, that only 51% of the population of the Republic of Ireland believe that there should be a, a United Ireland. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, it's certainly an interesting poll, and what it shows you is that the, the trends are pointing firmly towards Irish reunification. Um, in terms of the 26 counties, we've, we've seen a number of polls that sort of go anywhere between that rough 51 number up to somewhere um, at about 70%. I think it was probably important to know when the poll was carried out, probably during the time when there was significant street violence breaking out, that sometimes that can, can sway polling. Um, but what I would say is that it's positive that those numbers are where they are without even a plan being in place. Um, so what I think it is, what I, what I, what well, I think of course, it's time of course for, the flip side for the Irish the- government. I, f- I suppose the flip side to that, Kevin, is that uh, the number is only at 51%. Uh, 
before you even get into the kind of difficult conversations about things like tax and about things like money. And and, and at the moment, the conversation in the South maybe is about heart and not heads. Uh, do you think actually that when the head starts to get involved and you've got to take hard looks at things like finances, that 51 figure might even start to dip? No, well, I, I think that analysis is actually a wrong one. I think the, the economics of a reunified Ireland make uh, complete sense. Um, we've seen that you have the duplication of services, you have the inability uh, to raise fiscal and um, financial powers that are afforded to the executives. So within the context of a reunified Ireland, actually the argument that we would make is that the economics are, are better, they make more sense, and certainly people would be better off as a result. But as I was saying there just before you came in, Thomas, what I think it's time for is those difficult conversations. And I think Stuart would agree with me um, there. Um, in my view, what I think it's time for is the Irish government to publish a white paper on what the, their United Ireland might look like. Um, and I think it's time that maybe even a citizens' assembly should be well, called on Irish, Irish reunification. Well, Stuart, what do you make of that? Keevan interprets these polls, perhaps as you would suggest, as a sign that it's time to, to have this deeper conversation. Do you agree that unionism should engage in that type of conversation about what a new new Ireland, as the term is, might look like? And I want to talk in a second about some specifics, but should unionism, unionism engage in that conversation? Well, I, I often hear it described as a conversation, but it's a conversation that uh, the people that want, want to push it only want to see one outcome from. So I'm not sure it's quite a conversation. You know, it's not my job to tell Irish Republicans how best to achieve United Ireland. I think that's their role. And I think that if they want to um, disrupt the status quo, then, then it's really up to them to set out uh, what, what a so-called new, new Ireland would look like. Um, I, I certainly think the, the current Irish Republic is not the land of milk and honey that some, and to be fair to Sinn Féin, um, they, they wouldn't say this in the South, but there are, there are some within uh, nationalism that... that present this utopia of the Irish Republic that um, given the fact that uh, Sinn Féin are actually polling so well and did so well in, in the last uh, Irish general election would perhaps suggest it's not not quite the perfect place that some make it out to be. But ultimately, it's it's not my job to set out that case for, for Irish Republicans or for nationalists. It's, it's up to them to put their arguments mm. to the people. The my focus needs to be on Northern Ireland here and now and solving the issues and the, the big issues that there are to tackle for all our people. Mm -hmm. I, I want to mention a specific point that was mentioned then in, in a follow-up poll uh, for Lucid Talk, uh, uh, sorry, for Spotlight by Lucid Talk, that speaks to the issue you've just made about, you know, uh, continuing problems. Uh, United Ireland, there should be, is the question, in Northern Ireland, question, uh, an Irish NHS in Northern Ireland, 82% of people want to see that. In the Republic of Ireland, 70% of people uh, want to see that. I mean, Stuart, if if there was ever to be a, a border poll, how large would the NHS loom as a, a, a decisive factor for convincing people that, that unionism and, and keeping hold of the NHS as it currently exists? How big a factor would that be? I think it's going to, you know, I think if you uh, healthcare free at, free at the point of use, it's, it's a big, it, it's going to be a big factor in that debate. Um, but I, I think what that does by these conversations is we're taking away from the focus of how we fix our NHS in Northern Ireland now and how we address the challenges that it faces. And that this whole conversation um, takes away from those issues, takes attention and resource and time away from those issues. And I want to focus on 
and we want to focus on. And, and as we've been trying to do, you know, we've seen reforms in our health service in Northern Ireland during a pandemic, which if you had said beforehand, nobody would have said was possible. So what mm-hmm. I think we need to be doing is focusing in on how we fix those issues that are facing our people now mm-hmm. um, and, and not be worrying mm-hmm. about what may come down the line at, yeah. at some stage. We're, we're just past nine, guys, and I still want to talk very quickly about the Northern Ireland Protocol. I want to put that to Kevin, though. Uh, two things. First of all, what about... What about Stuart's point that instead of always, um, as a Republican Party would, talking about uh, unification, what about ignoring it for a while, knuckling down and fixing the, 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 the very long waiting times in the Northern Irish NHS? Well, of course, I, I would make the argument that actually Irish reunification would be the key um, to uh, changing and fixing the health system. I mean, we don't have the fiscal autonomy and we don't have the fiscal powers to raise the funds necessary. We have to go with a begging boat. And the Westminster and under a Conservative government, it's increasingly unlikely that we would get the funding required. So the vision that we have for a reunified Ireland is a vision of democracy. It's a vision of the Irish people making decisions um, for the people on this island. And actually, what you see is that those two trends are actually um, parallel in North and South, that the people here want to see healthcare free at the point of delivery. And we think as a Republican party, as a left-leaning party, that that's completely deliberate. It's a bit of an Sorry, Thomas, just before you do yeah. come in there, what you actually see is the trends north. You see the trend in towards privatization um, under Tory conservatism, um, imposing that on the people here. And the trends in the south, actually, the trends in the south are slauncher, are developing that more socialized type of health care. And I actually think you turning are you turning this issue on its head? I mean, the, the NHS is, is a Brit is, is a British invention as it currently exists. Absolutely, yes. And you're saying that the way to secure universal health care that currently exists in the UK is a united Ireland. And then the private healthcare system in the South, you're saying actually it's the NHS that's more private. No, I think what you've picked me up there wrong. What I'm saying is that there's the trending now um, in the UK context is trending towards privatisation, and nobody will dispute that. I mean, it's the it's the Stuart is literally disputing it right now. Let Stuart jump in, and then I can let you continue. I just I just want to see where the evidence for this is in Northern Ireland. We, you know, we're availing of private health care the nhs itself is availing of private beds i don't think i would call that a trend towards privatization um and i I, the other point i would make around tory tory austerity um you know never mind the 10 or 11 billion pounds on top of what we return to the exchequer that comes to Northern Ireland, but there were specific decisions made by the DUP and Sinn Féin over a 10-year period not to put money into departments like health, but to put them into other departments and other other pet projects of theirs. So there has to be a bit of accountability uh, in Northern Ireland for the problems that we face in the NHS and in education and in, in other matters. We can't just blame London every time um, that, that we come across an issue. Okay, we, we won't resolve this problem uh, before we finish up, but I want to have a very quick line or two, guys, about Brexit. Uh, polling Northern Ireland, uh, Republic of Ireland goes the way you would expect, but Northern Ireland, should the Northern Ireland protocol be scrapped? Yes, 48%. No, 46%. I don't know, 6%. Uh, Kevin, is that what you would have expected? More people want to see the Northern Ireland protocol scrapped than want to see it uh, kept in place? Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't say that that would be entirely unsurprising. I mean, the the, uh, the protocol is a is a it's the least worst option. Um, 
it certainly wasn't the option that the majority of people here voted for. Um, and what the majority of people voted for was to remain within the context of the European Union. So um, no, it's not surprising at all. And what I think we see now um, is those people that, that may be described as other, and indeed some unionists as well, um, moving closer towards um, that vision of re-entering Europe um, through through the context of... So hold on. So more people want to see it scrapped than kept in place. Yeah. And you're saying that that is indicative of people in favour of, of, or at least considering uh, unification of Ireland? Well, I mean, if you bring that into context, the majority of people here voted overwhelmingly to re remain within the EU. Um, I think that the protocol um, by all parties has been regarded, those people, those parties that are in favour of it have regarded it as the least worst option. And of course, the best option um, is securing um, European Union membership as the majority of people here in this part of the world voted to. Sure, so what, what's your response to that? That more people want to see it crap than uh, scrapped, sorry, than kept in place. And, and what about Kevin's argument there that what it speaks to is widespread discontent with the status quo. He's saying, best way out, uh, unification, back into Europe. Yeah, well, I think it's deeply ironic that people a few months ago that were calling for the protocol to be rigorously implemented are now calling for every mitigation under the sun to be used um, to, to get rid of the effects it's having. Does it surprise me the numbers? Uh, not particularly because some of the things we're seeing are absolutely farcical to do with this protocol at the minute. We're seeing four, during the week, four ponies detained at Belfast port for I don't know how long. Um, I'm not quite sure what threat that is to the EU single market. Um, you know, we're, we're facing serious issues when it comes to medicines when mitigations end. So I'm not particularly surprised mm -hmm. at, at the numbers. And, you know, I, I think... And yet the fair, irony, of course, Stuart, is that it was the British government that agreed it. Yeah, and uh, you'll not find me behind the door in, in saying that. And this ridiculous narrative that's put out there by some people that unionism is too, just won't criticise Boris Johnson and the British government, this quite frankly stands up to no scrutiny whatsoever either. Um, well, I mean, and, and unionism was certainly perhaps cosier with Boris Johnson up until the point that he came up with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, I, I think the DUP were. I think you should go back and look at some of the statements we made at the time would certainly say we were not cosy with Boris Johnson or, the, or that particular government and the deal. And, Yes, you're right. They, they they need to step up to the mark here as well and, and actually play a role and fix some of the issues. But it, it, it's hard for unionists to take um, lectures on things we warned about were going to happen in terms of the protocol from people who did call for it to be rigorously implemented and who now are suggesting that, oh, well, if we just mitigate this or mitigate that. So the question is, what is it? Is it the protocol or is it this watered down version of the protocol? Um, and it's clear that Kevin, the futures. Uh, 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 yeah. well, Kevin, respond to that, and then we'll have to finish up because we could literally do this all evening. And uh, I'm, I've gone seven minutes longer than I should have already. Kevin, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure me and Stuart will love to stay here the entire evening. No, but I think it's important to point out that, that the issue at its core is Brexit, <laughs> um, um, and nobody will will argue against that. I mean, the people that voted in favour of Remain, even the UUP themselves. Um, we're, we're calling for it and we're quite accurately explaining how Brexit would be a disaster, that it would affect trade east and west, that it would affect our access to the European single market. Um, but it's important to note as well, just on the point of some of those things that are being stopped at the border, that this is the position we find ourselves in because unionism was sold down the river by the Westminster government. Um, and that's, that's where the, the issues that unionism has at the moment, that's where their anger should lie. Um, not not being brought out into the streets and um, intercommunal violence. Okay.
Um, Gents, we're, we're going to have to leave it there uh, because we could we could give you a response to what the person has just said, essentially to infinity. So thank you both very much, Stuart Hughes, uh, chair of the Young Unionists, a uh, youth wing of the UUP, and Kevin McCann, chair of the uh, All Ireland Sinn Féin Ogre. Thank you both very much for being with me. Um, that brings us really to the end of the show. I want to thank um, the whole team here at the Scoop to Dara Tibbs. Uh, Hebe Lawson, uh, Amy Murray, who's been tweeting away, and the rest of the team. Um, we're approaching nine minutes past nine. Um, you can listen to all of our Scoop shows during the week. On Monday, the Good News Scoop. Tuesday, Trendy Scoop. Wednesday, Sporty Scoop. Thursday, Eco Scoop, I nearly forgot. Friday, Mental Health Scoop. And then we are always here on a Sunday at The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, uh, I think that all that remains to be said is have a wonderful uh, rest of your evening and uh, good night. Night night.